0: Hey, everybody, thanks for checking out 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff today. We're going to be covering a very special impact from 2010. Of course, it's when impact first moved to Monday night on a permanent basis. What worked, what didn't work, and what the fallout was. Stay tuned for me and Eric breaking that one down. Tomorrow on ARN, we'll revisit Payback 2015. Of course, I am a nostalgia guy, and that's usually what we talk about here on the show. But you guys have been digging our more recent conversations about modern WWE Tune in tomorrow for Payback 2015. On Wednesday, Tony and I will do Wrestlepalooza 1998. Can't wait to show Tony how overhead was with Al Snow's help. Wait a minute. Uh, also coming up on Thursday, of course, Grilling Jr. It's a very special show. It's Wrestle War 89. It's the end of the famous Ric Flair, Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat trilogy. And as soon as it's over, Terry Funk is there. We'll break down the entire show in long form. It's going to be a fun look back at a very special show. But this Friday, Tito Santana, one of the sung heroes of the World Wrestling Federation, we're going to get the full treatment on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Of course, you get all these shows early and ad-free if you join us over at adfreeshows.com. And there is a ton of bonus content, including recent conversations with Eric Bischoff on a video conference with David Arquette talking about the 20-year anniversary of David's run in WCW. We also have the behind-the-scenes look at What exactly happened during Eric's most recent stint in the WWE and ultimately his firing? We'll also revisit a very special show back when Eric was still trying to cut his teeth in wrestling, the AWA Super Clash 4. But perhaps one of Eric's new passion projects, the thing he's having the most fun doing, breaking down the story behind the Graveyard match and the Firefly Funhouse match with a professor. So if you really want to get into the weeds on two of the more controversial matches, It's available for you now at adfreeshows.com. No matter what, we appreciate you listening here. Hope you dig what we're doing. Hit the subscribe button. Leave us a five-star review and tell a friend about 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. And if you're into it, man, check us out. We'd love to get you all these shows early and ad-free starting at just nine bucks at adfreeshows.com. I hate Steven Singer. You know what else I hate? Everything that's happening in the world right now. Our hearts break for those that have lost loved ones, those who are ill, struggling small businesses, and everyone affected by all this. Now, normally, Stephen is in the love business and the happiness business. And this is the time I would be telling you about Stephen Singer's brand new 24-karat gold-dipped rose from Mother's Day. But this year, it's different. Stephen wants to put a little love in everyone's day, so he's using a portion of every rose sold to support independent restaurants by purchasing Catering for all the incredible nurses, doctors, first responders, and hospital workers. And you can purchase a mint green rose, a frozen white rose, or any of Steven's other signature colors. Know you are sending love to the mom in your life, but also supporting local restaurants and thanking our essential workers. If you're looking to celebrate someone, simply say, I love you or honor your mom on Mother's Day. Steven Singer is shipping as fast and safely as possible in time for Mother's Day. Stephen treats his customers as family, and we're here for you. Go to ihateStevensinger.com. Order by 2 p.m. Eastern this Wednesday, May the 6th, with free and touchless delivery in time for Mother's Day, and include a free personalized message of love. That's I Hate Stephen Singer, but hop to it, man. You got to order by 2 p.m. Eastern this Wednesday, May 6th, and you'll get free and touchless delivery in time for Mother's Day, all at ihateStevensinger.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you?
1: My world could not be better. I've got two pork butts out of the big green egg cooking at about 225 degrees on some mesquite wood chunks. I'm thinking about 530 this afternoon. I'm going to be having a gastrogasm. A gastrogasm? Have you ever heard of that? I just made that up. A gastrogasm.
0: Well, I can hear Dawkins trying to trademark it in the background. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited that we're here today because I got to tell you, we uh, we always said we were going to talk TNA at some point, but our most recent TNA episode I felt like was a great change of pace for us. We got great feedback from it, and now we're doing another TNA topic. What was the feedback you got from our first TNA show or our most recent TNA show, rather?
1: Uh, like yours, you know, the, the feedback was very, very positive. And I think part of that was, you know, because it was a subject that we hadn't touched on before really in any depth. And, And I understand that. And, you know, we're, this show focuses primarily on the Monday night wars and the, you know, the battle back and forth between WWE and WCW during the day, um, and and this is going to be a little bit different, but what I'm going to try to do, you know, I've been thinking about this all week. What I want to try to do is maybe draw some parallels uh, between what was going on in, in TNA or what we were trying to get going on in TNA uh, and some of the elements that worked and some of the elements that didn't work during the Monday Night Wars, and as well as, you know, looking at what's going on today and seeing if there's any application to our experiences, good and bad, and, uh, kind of connect the dots. So let's have some fun with it.
0: Our subject today is the March 8th, 2010 impact. I know what you're thinking. Well, that seems kind of random. Well, the reason we're covering it specifically is this is when the Monday night wars are recreated. Well, kind of, uh, for the first time impact is going to be moving their show to Monday night to go head to head with Monday night raw, and we've often heard the story about how that happened for nitro, uh, briefly sort of catch us up to speed about how nitro came to be head to head with Monday night raw and then try to, as, as much as we know, explain how Monday night happened for TNA.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, nitro on, on TNT, you know, we've, we've talked about it quite a bit. I wrote about it in my book and it's been the subject of, you know, all kinds of shoot interviews and, and other, um, Coverage over the last 20 or so years. So I'm not going to beat it to death, but it, you know, Nitro came about as a result of WCW, myself in particular, in this case, really trying to turn a profit for the very first time. And we were attacking that mission on, you know, from two different angles. One, we were cutting costs everywhere that we possibly could, whether it be travel or Uh, any other expenses. We're just really trying to cut our costs and and manage our resources in a way that up to that point, they have not been in WCW. And on the other hand, um, of course, we were trying to expand our programming, improve our content and our relationships with advertisers and sponsors and the audience and pay-per-view and all of that. So we're trying to increase revenue while we were cutting costs, hoping that, there would be a vector at some point and and that that vector point would be wcw's first dollar of profit that's all that i cared about that's all i was focused on you know, Prior to my meeting with Ted Turner and the, the birth of Nitro, the idea of going head-to-head with WWF was not even – it never occurred to me. It wasn't even a distant thought in my mind or part of my subconscious thought. So uh, it, it was a surprise to me, and it, it came about as a result of an opportunity that I had uh, that uh, had been developed, I think, by Sharon Sedella, who was in charge of international sales at the time, to do a deal – for international distribution of all of WCW's shows on Star TV. Star TV was is, I guess, um a a a Murdoch company, uh, Rupert Murdoch company that was b- based primarily in China. And or as Donald Trump would say, China. Um it was, a, it was kind of a controversial move because you know, anybody that studied media history and remembers back in the 90s, particularly the late 90s, there was as much of a head-to-head battle between Ted Turner and Rupert Murdoch as there was ultimately between WWF and WCW. It was ugly. It was a battle. It was public. And it got pretty outrageous you know, by corporate media standards. Ted was an abrasive character who spoke his mind whenever he was in the mood. And uh, it got a lot of attention. So back to the story. Uh, we got the opportunity. We, we were we were so close. Our projections and I don't remember when it was. It was in the midsummer, early summer. I think we got our financial projections for the fourth quarter based on what we had been doing up to that point. And our, our projections suggested to us that, you know, we're we're within spitting distance of turning a profit which was very exciting for all of us because up to that point, WCW had never ever turned a dollar profit. And in most years at a minimum lost five and a half to seven and a half million dollars. And when I took over, uh, it it reflected a, a $10 million loss on about $35 million worth of revenue. And if you're a finance person, you can figure out that's a pretty bleak scenario. So when we finally got to the point in 95, when we were looking at our projections, and by the way, we didn't do those projections. Those projections came out of Turner Finance and were approved by Turner Finance before they got to us. So these were legitimate, credible forecasts and projections, and and a little on the conservative side, I may add. But when we saw them, it was like, whoa, wait a minute, we got to figure out whatever we can do. Well, now enter the international opportunities that Sharon Sadello had brought to the table, one of which was star TV owned by Rupert Murdoch. Now at that point in WCW, I had the authority uh, and freedom, if you will, to, sign off on just about any deal that we wanted to sign off on. I wanted to sign off on it. It's, it's not like I had to take it to two or three people and, you know, and, and get it. But there. There was no real chain of command, uh, at that point with me. Although I did report to Harvey Schiller who reported on up to Ted Turner. Um, he, Harvey was kind of a hands-off guy when it came to revenue and, and, and bringing money in. So, uh, and, and we were doing a good job. You know, if you, if you were to go back and look at WCW in 1995, say May or June of 95, which is the time period I think we're really talking about here, um, our, our numbers were looking good. We had cut costs dramatically. We were good stewards of of, of our finances and resources. And we were making moves to increase Revenue opportunities. So there, because we were moving in the right direction, Harvey was relatively new on the job. Harvey Sh- Harvey Schiller, my boss, was relatively new on the job as president of Turner Sports. And WCW was just not something that was high in his list of things to think about or worry about, particularly uh, because we were doing pretty well. So long story short, the, the, long story short, listen to me. There's no such fucking thing with me. <laughs> but... But as as it became apparent that this deal with Star TV was probably worth in excess of a million dollars net to WCW, and we would be receiving that revenue in 95, meaning it would hit my books before the close of the fiscal year, which meant that we would not only be in profit, we would be in substantial profit, uh, so we left that, you know, all we want to do is make $1 in profit was, you know, potentially, you know, our rear view mirror. And we were probably looking at, you know, close to a half a million or three quarters of a million dollars of profit that very first year. So, you know, I was excited about the deal, but I was smart enough to know that if I just went off on my own and closed a deal with a Rupert Murdoch owned company, given the relationship and the high profile battle that was going on between Murdoch and Turner at the time that I'd probably get my ass handed to me and rightfully so I would, I would have understood it. So I did the next best thing. I, I I talked to Harvey Shiller about it and, and more or less told Harvey or suggested to Harvey. I didn't tell Harvey anything, but I, I let Harvey know what I was thinking and suggested that I go to Scott Sassa. Scott Sassa at the time was the number two. He was the heir apparent to Turner Broadcasting, pre-Time Warner, pre AOL. He was the guy. Um, really, really bright individual, uh, open-minded. You know, I hate to use the term "out of the box," but it's been so overused. But he was a very, very big thinker. Let's put it that way. When it came to business. And I had a good relationship with Scott. He was a younger guy, you know, um, probably my age, maybe a little younger at the time. And I had, you know, I had a, a, a really good relationship with Scott. So I, I gave Scott a call and said, Scott, here's here's where we're at. I showed him our projections. I showed him the proposal from Star TV. He recognized the conflict <laughs> that was, you know, looming in the shadows. And I asked Scott if he would help me pitch it to Ted because I thought coming from Scott – it might be more palatable to Ted as opposed to coming from the guy who's running the wrestling company. Cause up to that point, I really didn't have a relationship with Ted. I mean, met him at Christmas parties. He invited me to his um, office once or twice for you know bigger meetings, but I was, you know, I was kind of like a, I was a piece of furniture in the room. There, there was no direct communication between Ted and I. So, um, I said it I set it up with Scott Scott said absolutely I'm more than happy to help you do it pulled Harvey Schiller into the loop. Uh, Harvey myself and Scott Sassa had a meeting with Ted. Uh, the the purpose of the meeting was to pitch this idea to do a deal with Rupert Murdoch's company star TV and I got about 10 minutes into the pitch and Ted changed the subject and basically you know laid, going head to head with WWF on my lap and which was a total surprise to Scott Sassa who didn't want, that was not what he was thinking about. Had he known that would have been the ultimate outcome of the meeting, he would have never supported it or participated in it because that's the last thing that Ted or Scott, excuse me, Scott wanted to do. Harvey just sat there with a big smile on his face and I was in a state of shock. Um, and the rest is history. So that was the, the birth of Nitro and the birth of the head-to-head uh, competition between what was going to become Nitro and WWF on Monday nights. Now, fast forward to 2010. What are we, 15 years? Uh, fast forwarding 15 years. And uh, TNA, who had been wanting to sign Hulk Hogan for quite a while, um, I, I had talked to Hulk before we ever did business with TNA and over the course of a couple of years, he let me know that, you know, TNA and one way shape, or it. Jeff Jarrett had reached out, Dixie Carter herself had reached out. Um, there were several attempts and none of them really came to fruition until, you know, whenever it was 2009 or so when Dixie and Jeff uh, made another reach out to Hulk and at that point, Hulk was – he was in really, really bad shape physically and mentally. He was going through a lot at the time. But physically, more than anything, he, he was in such pain um, that he had a hard time communicating most of the time. He, 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 had a hard, he couldn't get out of bed. He needed help getting out of bed just – to use the restroom, he 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 couldn't lay on his back, he couldn't lay on his side, he couldn't lay on his stomach, he couldn't stand up, he couldn't sit down. I mean, there was no position where he could get relief from the pain he was in, and he was self well, not self-medicating. He was, you know, under doctor's care, but um, he was eating, you know, fistfuls of Vicodin and down, you know, course of course, expensive vodka on a pretty regular basis, just trying to manage the pain. And I was dealing with a lot of Hulk's business at the time. Um, people aren't aware of this. I don't think generally, I don't talk about it too much because it's not really relevant to most of the conversations I have, but there was a period of time with regard to the divorce and a variety of lawsuits that Hulk was engaged in. And, you know, all of his trademark business and just a ton of his, the business of being Hulk Hogan, he couldn't manage it. And, and, and he he basically asked me to handle all of his business um up to and including transferring an enormous amount of his wealth and savings uh into in an account that I had control over um it's the wealthiest I've ever been in my life <laughs> as a matter of fact. and uh you, you know, I, I, it was a tremendous amount of responsibility, and it, it, I knew it was temporary, and so did he, until he was able to sort out his, his situation. But he was getting blindsided from, three hundred and sixty different degrees all at one time. Uh, every angle on the compass was coming at him, and I did my best working with his attorney to to kind of filter and manage uh, some of these issues, and one of them was TNA. And Hulk basically said to me, look, I can't deal with it. Negotiate the best deal you can. You speak for me. Whatever you agree to, I'll agree to. Because he just couldn't participate in the process. The, the, the pain was that overwhelming. So I did uh, with his attorney. I didn't negotiate it. You know, I wasn't flying solo. Uh, I was working closely with his attorney and, and working, you know, through Jeff and Dixie and Uh, their attorney, his name was Guy Blake, very good guy, by the way, Guy was very good guy. Guy Blake was a, was one of my favorite attorneys to deal with because he was a deal maker, not a deal breaker. He was always looking for ways to, to accomplish the end result as opposed to throwing up a bunch of red flags and making it more difficult than it really needed to be, which is eh, in my experience tends to be the standard operating procedure of most attorneys. But fast forward, we we got the deal done, we made the big announcement, there's the opportunity, everybody's excited, Dixie in particular, she really, really wanted Hulk Hogan on the roster. Uh, they had, you know, they brought in Dusty Rhodes, they brought in Booker T, they brought in Kevin Nash, um, they brought in Jeff Hardy, they brought in Sting, they brought in Kurt Angle, so there was a lot of, you know, A-listers, former WWE talent and WCW talent uh, there but it had not been moving the needle and as much criticism as Dixie gets and and like me you know I I got a lot get a lot still some of it I deserved some of it not but Dixie's in that same category um, Dixie got a, a got a lot of credit but she also got a lot of criticism to her credit I will say that while Dixie didn't have, the experience, or really the commitment to grow TNA. The thing that she lacked most was the vision and understanding what it was really going to take. I think because Dixie was so new to the business and didn't really have anybody around her that had experience, and I don't mean this as a criticism to Jeff Jarrett, um, but even Jeff, you know, is, is... Highly, as I think of him in many respects, Jeff had never really built a business, not not the size and the scope of a wwe or 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 wCw or or, or wasn't even a part of the team that was successful in in growing a brand and uh, to an international level and to compete uh, on national television. That just wasn't Jeff's background. So as a result, there were a lot of people in TNA, management in TNA, that while they had kind of a, a, a lofty dream, um, didn't have the vision, which had to include the strategy and the tactics to get you to where you want to be. They would get halfway there. You know, they did a lot of things halfway that really you know, put them on the map. They, they were able to land a Spike TV deal. They, they, TNA accomplished a lot of things prior to Hulk and I getting there. And I don't want to diminish any of them because that would be unfair and disingenuous. But they would get to a certain point and they would kind of flatline. And that's about the time that I think they made the decision, look, we're doing pretty well. We've made some money. We need to bring in Hulk
0: Hogan. I need to give you guys a peek behind the curtain before we started recording today, Eric and I were talking about rad power bikes. I'm not kidding. Eric is getting one of these. He is so excited. Uh, I think Laurie might be getting him one for father's day, but he's saying he's been told not to buy one. So something's coming. Uh, he's pretty fired up about it because he's been talking about it a lot. The weather's nice and he wants to get out and you know, Eric's a little outdoorsy. Here's my point. If you've got a birthday coming up for someone in your family Maybe Mother's Day, Father's Day. This is going to be one badass gift. And I have to admit, I didn't really know much about e-bikes until I heard more about Rad Power Bikes. I should mention that when it comes to e-bikes, Rad Power Bikes is getting a ton of great press. They've recently been voted the best affordable electric bike in five categories by electricbikereview.com. And I think they're actually the largest electric bike brand in North America. Now, just so you know, because I had to discover this myself, an electric bike is like a cross between a traditional bike and a moped but you don't need a special driver's license for this like you would a moped and these e-bikes are very affordable though they're built for every purpose maybe you're just putt putting around town or getting out in nature even transporting some kids around just going outside and having fun man and that's what eric's going to use his for and the great thing about this is it's very very affordable you see some of the competitors out there for e-bikes they're like three thousand bucks all of the bikes here with rad power bikes start at 1200 bucks and they're all under 1500. So roughly, I mean, even if you get the Mac daddy here, it's still going to be half of what everybody else is doing. Now here's the fun piece of this. This thing can go 20 miles an hour without pedaling. So you can go out and have fun without getting all sweaty. Sign my fat ass up. Check out these good guys over at rad power bikes. They're even doing a special deal for those who serve us. And when I say us, I mean, all of us, they've got a hundred dollar discount off all purchases for active and ex-military first responders, teachers, even students. They've even got us-based customer support seven days a week. If you have any questions or concerns, but I, I can't stress this enough. This is an incredible gift for someone who loves being active and outdoors and rad power Bikes is even offering flexible financing right now for as low as 0% APR. And right now is a limited time offer. Get a free accessory with the purchase of a bike. That's right. Get a free gift up to a hundred dollars in value and free shipping to the lower 48 states. To get this special offer. Text the word weeks to 64,000. That's weeks to 64,000. Just text W E E K S weeks to 64,000. So.
1: Again, I negotiated the deal. Hogan's there, Bischoff is there. I got Jimmy Harted into the deal. We've laughed about that in the past, but it's the truth. You know, Dixie in, in the TNA management had no desire to have Eric Bischoff on the roster or as a part of management, but under the circumstances, you know, I, we beat it to death before I want to it here. You know, Hulk wasn't comfortable uh, creatively with TNA and kind of forced me into the equation. Um, I wasn't really excited about it myself. TNA wasn't something that I aspired to do. I kind of felt like I'd been to the mountaintop with WCW as, as, you know, turning it around and building it up to the level we did and being successful and competing with the WWF. And then afterwards going to work for the WWF and or WWE at that point and kind of having a pretty pretty good run as a talent you know, I was pretty happy to to walk away from wrestling and and know that I had accomplished really quite a bit, uh, good and bad. So when it, you know, when we finally did the deal, and Hulk was on board and I was on board and started getting more and more familiar with what their goals were and what they were trying to do, I think it was just the, the level of enthusiasm, the excitement of having Hulk Hogan on board, driven primarily by, by Dixie. And, and some of the, people on the management team. I'm not sure all of them were hundred percent behind it. Uh, Hulk was relatively speaking, fairly expensive, even though it was spike TV paying the freight. It still had, you know, a little bit of a, 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 a downstream effect on the rest of the talent roster, wanting more money and things like that. But, you know, Hulk, the Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff package, which was, I don't know, $1.5 million, I guess, give and take, give or take. Uh, That was completely absorbed by Spike TV. That did not come out of TNA's operating budget. A lot of people didn't know that until many years after the fact. In fact, we didn't really understand it completely until after the fact and found out later, much later, that the same thing was true with Sting and, and and a couple other big talents that came, came in, um, that Viacom, uh, offset the costs for, so fast forward again, we're there, we're excited. Everybody's, you know, well, how do we make this the biggest we can make? And I, you know, I'll, I'll take responsibility for it, you know, and I think it was Hulk and I in a conversation because, you know, Hulk was really excited to kind of be back in the business again. And especially after everything that he was going through, he, you know, Orlando where we did all of our tapings was only an hour and 40 minute drive or so from Tampa. He didn't have to fly. He didn't, you know, he could fl- drive in, do what he needed to do and get, get home. And, you know, without having to fly all over the country. So, Hulk was pretty excited about it and was doing his best to manage his physical issues and all the other things that were going on. And in a conversation, I think, between Terry and I, I was like, God, what, you know, we got to, we got to put TNA on the map. You know, TNA was doing okay. uh, Relatively speaking, not really. Uh, if, if, if you look at their numbers today, you would go, wow, I mean, I'm sure AEW would love to have TNA's numbers from 2010. And so would NXT. And so would a lot of other programming because they were typically drawing and it depends whose numbers you listen to. But without the research in front of me, I think it's fair to say they were between 1.3 and uh, 1.8 million viewers on a pretty regular basis. And, we were looking at the opportunity and of course we wanted to make it as big as we could be. We wanted to have as big of an impact on impact pun intended, uh, as we possibly could. And Hulk and I were batting ideas around and you know, the, the one thing that we were up against, and this is where I want to draw an analogy between what we're seeing today in WWE and an AEW and to a degree the challenge that TNA had. Now we all know, we can all agree, you know, the, the peripheral media, you know, I, I read Bruce Mitchell quite a bit. You know, I'll, I, I read Dave Shearer, you know, I read wrestling Inc, you know, Ryan Satin, you know, so I do, you know, I, I, I do read and there's, these are all credible people who I do um, enjoy reading their, their commentary as well as, you know, their news. And I think one thing that we can all agree on right now is wrestling doesn't work without an audience. Nobody has to be a rocket scientist to, to come up with that observation. But one of my concerns with TNA and one of the reasons I wasn't excited about doing it is because it was in a soundstage. Now, while a soundstage arguably is a live audience – it is just a little bit better than having cardboard cut, cutouts in the seats with piped in fake noise. It's not a real audience. The audience, for the most part, didn't really understand, wasn't really engaged. Now, there was a small, and again, you go back to the TNA, you look at the, what do they call it? The impact zone is what they called it. Yeah. You know, there was a, a small handful, 20, 30, whatever of regulars that would come every week. And of course they wanted to be on TV and mug for the camera and, you know, make faces and hold up cool signs and shit. But for the most part, the audience of 250 or 350 people, whatever it was, was comprised of people who really weren't into the product. They were there because it was an attraction at the park and we would show up at, at universal studios, much like we did when I, when I, When I did the exact same thing for the WCW worldwide show in syndication for WCW back in 93 or 94, whenever it was, 92, 93, I can't remember. We went through the same experience and had the same result, which is a very artificial crowd that didn't connect to the audience at home. So similarly to what we have today where you've got, no matter whose company it is, you've got some great talent in the ring. You've got great action in the ring occasionally, very occasionally, you've got some great story evolving in the ring. But when there's no audience there to kind of project the emotion that's being created in in the ring to the audience that's watching at home, the audience that's watching at home feels like, eh, why am I doing this? And I think the numbers that we've been seeing from everybody – Across the boards, the deterioration of the audience is a reflection of that. Well, again, trying to draw a parallel between then and now, you know, I saw, I recognized in 2010, primarily because of my experience in, in 1994, 1995, by doing the same exact thing in WCW, I knew what the flaws were. I knew, what the, I, I, I knew, I knew it wasn't going to work uh and in front of that producing a show in front of that what I call an artificial audience it's just not the same thing is having people passionate about your product and buying tickets to come and see it because the big show's coming to town there's two different levels of energy so we thought okay how do we recreate that how do we how do we create the energy we need to put TNA on the map because while it had a core small core, relatively small core at that time, a million, million and a half viewers was considered a very, very small core, um, audience in prime time, especially, uh, what do we, what do we do beyond just signing Hulk Hogan? What can we do to get people to sample the product? What can we do to create awareness, controversy, I guess, um, What can we do to at least force people that maybe either weren't aware of TNA or were aware of it, but weren't really interested in watching it or had watched it and kind of tune in every once in a while, but don't tune in regularly. What can we do to kind of wrangle all of those audience members, potential audience members? What can we do to get them to sample the product? And obviously, because of the head-to-head success that Nitro had, um, not that TNA was Nitro by any stretch of the imagination, but the very fact that we were going head-to-head, the fact that it was Hulk Hogan, to a lesser degree, the fact that I was involved, um, allowed us to kind of stimulate the audience beyond just ticking up banner ads on the internet you know, promoting the show within the show, which is basically preaching to the choir. Um, it allowed us to stir some shit up.
0: Damn it. Shit. These are the noises I used to make when I would cut myself shaving before I knew about manscaped. Thank you. Manscaped for turning my loud shrieks into multiple peaks. Listen, here's the deal. We all have had a little situation before where we, uh, we got a little nick, got a little cut in our most sensitive area our yam bag as Taz would say, here's the thing manscaping accidents can now be a thing of the past thanks to manscaped.com no more nicks or cuts not with manscapes lawnmower 3.0 it's a third generation trimmer still got the same great advanced skin safe technology still going to keep you nice and smooth but the engineering team over at manscaped.com spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and now we're talking about the brand new and improved lawnmower 3.0 Check this out. The battery will last up to 90 minutes to give you a longer shave. You've also got an led light, which is going to illuminate the grooming area for a closer, more precise trimming. And don't forget about the rapid charging dock, all powered by USB. People are loving this. It's the talk of the wrestling business. See what everybody's talking about and try it for yourself. You can even get 20% off on free shipping. When you use our promo code 83 weeks at manscape.com. That's right. Get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code 83 weeks at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Just use the promo code 83 weeks, your partner, your Dick and your balls. will thank
1: you. So presented that I presented that, uh, Hulk and I, I guess, presented that to, um, Dixie and she got real excited about it. And then we took it to the next step and talked to Scott Fishman and Kevin K from, what is now Paramount TV? What was then Spike TV, uh, as a part of Viacom? We pitched it to them. Now, obviously, you know everybody knew, and this is the part of this story that is probably going to solicit um, bullshit-type responses from some people because they've they've bought off, you know, many people in the in the peripheral media, internet community, whatever, have bought into the narrative that we really thought we, meeting Hulk and and myself and Dixie and TNA and whatever, all believed that we could be successful going head-to-head with WWF. That wasn't true. Nobody said that. Nobody believed that, myself included, because I knew the nature of the product. There's no way you're going to have a show going, a, a TNA show, in the impact zone, in a soundstage with 250 people, 30 or 40 or 50 of them, you 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 recognize because you see them every freaking week. Um, that show didn't have the energy and the scope and the magnitude to compete with Raw, but we did believe that by going head to head and poking the bear, so to speak, a couple things would happen. Uh, the first thing is it would create a buzz. And, and within the community, not just the internet wrestling community, not just with wrestling fans in general, uh, but with advertisers. Again, using the same formula that had been successful with, with WCW, even though when Hulk Hogan came to WCW, if you, rem- if you remember, he was still – he had the stink of a steroid trial on him. There, I mean, there, there were – he had a lot of negative publicity associated with Hulk when he came to WCW. That's why it was such a big risk to bring him in. Um, just from a PR perspective, but it worked. Eventually it worked. And we, you know, the collective we, which by the way, included Viacom executives and people within TNA and, and myself believed that by making this move, we would plant a flag to say, hey, we're here. We may not be WWE, but we're here. And oh, by the way, we got this guy by the name of Hulk Hogan, who is a proven commodity from a media perspective. Yes, I'm going to acknowledge it right here. There are a lot of wrestling fans that went, Ugh. Hulk Hogan, we've seen it. We've been there. We've done it. He's not a homegrown TNA talent, which not many of them were, by the way. And there were, you know, like I said, Sting, Booker T, Dusty Rhodes had come in, um, Kevin Nash, Jeff Hardy, Kurt Angle. The list goes on and on of former WWE and WCW stars that came in a long time before Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan did. But we knew with Hulk Hogan. That we could plant the flag in a much louder, controversial, interesting way, especially by going head-to-head. And at the very least, at the very least, we would get people to sample the product. And we knew going in, we discussed it going in, that we're going to give this a run. Let's see what we can do with it. Let's see if we can go from whatever the audience was. I don't want to throw numbers out because I'll probably be wrong. But whatever the numbers was were at the time, we we wanted to see if we could grow it and take it with us if and when we had to move back to Thursday nights. So that was the decision. Uh, everybody on board uh, signed off on it, including you know Spike executives because they knew you know we had an asset in Hulk Hogan. Um, we 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 were going to go head to head, which was kind of a a tactic that had worked in the past we knew it was going to create buzz spike tv was going to throw in a bunch of money to help market it and promote it so we'd attract audience that might not otherwise be aware of tna or had just quit watching it for whatever reason as we discussed earlier and then the decision was made to go head to head
0: so now that you guys are going head to head what what are you I mean, are you guys rallying the troops to say, hey, we got to step our game up? This is, I mean, is there a big rah-rah with the group? And, and what's the message you're conveying to the troops?
1: You know, I'm not a yay rah-rah guy. You know, I, I, uh, it's not my style. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, what TNA management did. and And keep in mind, this is another fact that gets diluted or clouded. Uh, from the conversation when it comes to my time in TNA and the narrative around it. I had nothing to do with management of TNA, good or bad, nothing. Nobody called me and asked me questions. I, 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 I wasn't a part of uh, conference calls. I, I had no interest. I made it clear I did not want to be a part of TNA management. It was written into my contract specifically because I didn't want to be held responsible or more importantly, in my case, it wasn't about being responsible. I just didn't want to get mired in the muck. It wasn't what I was interested in doing. I was there to oversee creative as it related to Hulk Hogan. Uh, If appropriate, you know, show up on camera. Uh, But that was it. So, what was said to TNA talent and management, I couldn't tell you because I wasn't a part of it. I, my world was, you know, showing up at TV. Um, and I, you know, I did come in to Nashville, uh, I think twice a month, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it might've been more than that later on, but I would come in and, and kind of review creative with, um, Rousseau and, early on, Ed Ferrara, Matt Conway, and a few other people that were on the team. And again, just to oversee the Hulk Hogan elements of the creative. But beyond that, I would show up at TV and, you know, first thing we would do in the morning is go over the television for that night, make any changes that needed to be made, and then go about producing it, pre-tapes and that type of thing. Um, so I didn't get involved. And, and as a result, I, there was no yay, rah, rah for me. I'm not sure what was said internally.
0: Well, that's so right. TNA officially announced the move to Monday nights from nine to 11 PM, starting March 8th, running live every other week and doing Monday and Tuesday tapings. The main event of the first show will be Hulk Hogan and abyss versus Ric Flair and AJ styles. And the first match in the company for both Hogan and flair. The belief is this will lead to the lockdown pay-per-view on April 18th where Hogan and flair are both a part of teams in the lethal lockdown war game style match. The move has been debated, but after the success on January 4th, it's a move TNA has to try. If it fails, they can always move back to Thursday when it's clear it didn't work. There are plenty of arguments both ways, but TNA isn't going to challenge WWE in ratings anytime soon, if ever. As long as TNA consistently can stay above a 1.2 rating, then this move is a win. They'd have a lot easier time getting that number from eight to 10, since on the January 4th episode eight to nine was significantly higher than hours two and three, two things were notable on the January 4th show is that after a good percentage of people who started with impact switched to raw after Hulk Hogan's promo ended around nine fifteen, And then there wasn't a lot of switching back and forth. Dixie Carter said the opportunity to go from eight to 10, uh, but chose going head to head with raw for both hours. It's a decision that's hard to make sense out of before we keep going. Do you know anything about that? You know, the, the time slot. I mean, I know you were involved in suggesting the idea, but did you have a strong opinion one way or another about eight to 10 versus nine to 11?
1: I, th- I think, you know, Dixie's position was a reflection of the conversations that we had, which is if we're going to fight, let's fight. Let's not fight from the sidelines. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to pick a fight, you know, with the toughest kid in school, you, you got to go up and punch him in the mouth. Um, not stand on the parking lot and call them names. So that, that was, if you're going to do it, do it. Don't kind of do it. And that was the decision again. And what Dave, you know, wouldn't have known or understood or having never been in the industry, really just observing it from the sidelines is the strategy was to go head to head. The strategy at its core was to pick a fight. It's, it appeals to the nature of the wrestling audience. Um, and we knew going in that there was probably better ways to get bigger numbers, but there wouldn't have been a better way to create more of a buzz and awareness than punching a bully in the chops. So that's what that's, I I think that was the general feeling amongst everybody.
0: I hate Steven Singer. You know what else I hate? Everything that's happening in the world right now. Our hearts break for those that have lost loved ones, those who are ill, struggling small businesses, and everyone affected by all this. Now, normally Steven is in the love business and the happiness business. And this is the time I would be telling you about Steven Singer's brand new 24 karat gold dipped rose from Mother's day. But this year it's different. Steven wants to put a little love in everyone's day. So he's using a portion of every rose sold to support independent restaurants by purchasing catering for all the incredible nurses, doctors, first responders, and hospital workers. And you can purchase a mint green rose, a frozen white rose, or any of Steven's other signature colors. No, you are sending love to the mom in your life, but also supporting local restaurants and thanking our essential workers. If you're looking to celebrate someone simply say, I love you or honor your mom on mother's day. Steven singer is shipping as fast and safely as possible. In time for Mother's Day. Stephen treats his customers as family, and we're here for you. Go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Order by 2 p.m. Eastern this Wednesday, May the 6th, with free and touchless delivery in Time for Mother's Day. And include a free personalized message of love. That's I Hate Stephen Singer, but hop to it, man. You gotta order by 2 p.m. Eastern this Wednesday, May 6th, and you'll get free and touchless delivery in time for Mother's Day. All at I Hate Singer. Dot .com It's uh it's remarkable to think that this even happened. Um Meltwater report should be noted that in the, that the addition of uh, Hulk Hogan, Rick Flair and Eric Bischoff changed the game and TNA January numbers were at record levels while February fell back to near normal levels. TNA house show business went way up in January and for TNA pay-per-view shows both November and December in 08 and 09 looked to be terrible. <laughs> Although it appears this year was slightly down from last year. The December 09 final resolution lame duck show in particular may have been the lowest TNA pay-per-view in history. While numbers with Hogan are higher than that figure, they still appear to be a huge disappointment because they're well under what was even an average number. And he would later write Bischoff has been answering fan questions on a Facebook page. He says there's no chance of bringing in DDP and he doubts bill Goldberg has any interest in doing pro wrestling. It's fascinating to see guys in charge of companies arguing with fans in a condescending way. But then again, if you say Dana White on Twitter, it's not that much different. So there's a lot to unpack here. Let's, let's talk about, you know, the, uh, the talent piece first. You're asked about DDP and Bill Goldberg, and I understand why, you know, Bill Goldberg was uh, quite a force for WCW, not too terribly long before this. So it makes sense that maybe people would have questions. Hey, if, if, Bischoff's putting the band back together, maybe he's figured in and diamond Dallas page, I think most people know you guys had a real, real life relationship. Uh, why did you quickly shut the DDP thing down? Had you, in speaking with them realized that, Hey, he's done with wrestling and doesn't, he wants to move on with his life now. Or what did that look like?
1: Yeah. I mean, that was exactly it. you know, and even to this day, you know, Paige and I are, are, are very, very close, but um anybody that knows me really well knows that I you know I'm not a good phone friend. You know, I don't talk you know, even my you know my brother and sister who I, I love dearly, you know, I talk to them on the phone maybe three times a year. <laughs> you know, over over the holidays primarily. Um uh, maybe a little more often than that. Um I just I don't know why. I, I I I don't like talking on the phone, I guess, for whatever reason. And as a result you know, I, I, even though Paige and I were very close friends, w- it, it was one of those types of relationships where we might not talk for six months, eight months, a year. And then when we would cross paths either in person or if he were to call me uh, or I were to call him for whatever reason, um, we'd pick it up just where we left off. Like, you know, we had just got done having a beer, you know, last night. So it, it's just a nature of, of kind of my personality, um, More than anything. So, yes, we were very close friends, still are to this day, but very rarely chat on the phone. But I had talked to Paige a couple times. Uh, We we, we had uh, dinner in LA right before this, and it was just coincidental. I was there on business, and so he was actually living there at the time. And, uh, you know, it had been a long time since we had spoken to each other, and uh, we went out to dinner, had a great time. And it was my impression, strong impression, based on everything that he said, that he really had no desire to get back into wrestling. He had this vision for this wacky, you know, harebrained idea that I was sure was never going to work called DDP yoga. Um, And he was fully committed to that and turned it into a monster and a very successful enterprise that we know today. But even back then, that was really his focus. And he had no interest really in getting back into the ring. And you know, he was getting to the point physically where, you know, even though he's in great shape and still is to this day, he's probably in many ways in better shape than, you know. When he was wrestling. A lot of people <laughs> that, that, that are currently wrestling and certainly mm-hmm. better than when he was wrestling. But there's a difference between being in good shape and being in wrestling shape. Right. And. He recognized, even back in 2010, He could he go out and do a one-off? Sure. Could he shoot an angle and go home, not come back for six months? Sure. Could he show up every week and be involved in a storyline at a level that he would want to be in? Uh-uh. And, and I knew that. So
0: that was the reason why it was
1: easy for me to respond about TDP. Let's
0: talk a little bit about Meltzer's comment that it was a game changer for you and Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair to join TNA but that after the initial rush from those January shows subsided, February sort of settled back in. Did did you view that as maybe a lost opportunity or, or that maybe this was a chance to regain some of that momentum?
1: Well, I, I was disappointed, I guess, if I understand the question. I mean, look, when we came in, we achieved a lot and we we set record ratings. I I don't recall what the ratings were off the top of my head, but I think it was in excess of 2 million viewers. And, and everybody was really happy about that. Everybody's high fiving and popping his champagne and Dixie and myself and Jason Hervey and Hulk and a few others would head on over to the hard rock hotel and casino over in Orlando at the universal lot where we were staying. And there were Copious amounts of wine consumed as a result but you know after all of that was over um, and the numbers did settle in as Dave pointed out uh, it it was disappointing because we we achieved one goal by getting people to sample the product but we weren't very successful at holding on to them to the extent we wanted to so that's what I think you know, the, the, the impetus of let's, let's go head to head. Let's try to make something happen. And, um, that's probably where it started.
0: Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about some, some news and notes sort of moving around in the company behind the scenes. I don't know how much of this you were involved in, but at least want to bring it up. Tracy Brooks, who'd been with the company longer than any other female, she's let go here, um, a lot of fans know her now as uh, the wife of Frankie Kazarian, great friend of the show. But in the early days of TNA, she was a, a pretty important character, and it looks like creative has nothing for her, so her time is done. Do you remember uh, Tracy, and do you have any interesting or fun stories about Tracy?
1: Of course I remember. She's a sweetheart. I, I I really enjoyed working with I worked with her very briefly. She must have come back to the company. And again, I wasn't... I wasn't paying close attention to TNA prior to coming there. I've, I've stated that publicly many times. Uh, I wasn't on my radar. I had no interest in it. Uh, just, you know, watching wrestling in front of a small studio audience, it just didn't appeal to me. Um, so I was, you know, there was a lot of talent there that I'd never really come across before. But uh, Tracy was there for whatever reason. She was like, oh, that wasn't a decision that I was a part of or even was aware of while it was being made for that matter. And then she came back. Towards I don't remember what year it was. It might have been 2012, 2013. And I actually worked with Tracy uh, in a couple scenes. And she's she's an adorable, you know, lady. I you know, she's got a great personality, and she's fun, and she's talented. Um, but I, you know, aside from that, you know, cup of coffee where th- that I had a chance to work with her, and she towards the end of her most her last run there. Um, I I wasn't aware of Tracy prior to coming in.
0: If you like sex, you're going to love BlueChew.com. BlueChew is offering men a performance enhancement for the bedroom. We're talking about the world's first chewable with the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis. It's all happening at BlueChew.com. Now, Here's how it works. A BlueChew.com affiliated physician will work with you online to find the right dose and active ingredient that's best for you. Now, because it's a chewable, it can work faster. And these chewables can be taken on a full or an empty stomach. I should mention that the online physician consult, well, that's free. So it's cheaper to use than the other two. Of course, talking about Viagra and Cialis. It only takes a couple of minutes to connect to a Bluetooth.com affiliated physician. And if you qualify, you'll get prescribed online very quickly. So let's recap. There's no in-person doctor visit, no awkward conversation, no waiting in line at a pharmacy. It's going to ship directly to your door in discreet packaging. It's made right here in the USA. And by the way, is prescribed online by a doctor why wouldn't you do this blue chew is going to give you the confidence in bed you need every time you and your partner will love it so chew it and do it and here's a great deal for you guys visit bluechew.com and get your first order for free when you use promo code 83 weeks just pay five dollars shipping that's b-l-u-e-c-h-e-w.com and the promo code is 83 weeks Let's talk a little bit about uh, another name that's that's on the list here. Sean Morley, he's leaving the company. We recently touched on that on our lockdown episode. Did you have? I mean, here's the the interesting thing and the reason I bring this up. He's quitting the company just uh, one day after you know the the episode airs of him beating Jeff Jarrett. And Meltzer would comment that was like reliving WCW for sure. And he's expressing some frustration on his Facebook page that. TNA didn't seem to have firm plans, so Mexico, here I come. Do you remember there being a particular falling out with Sean Morley? Were you not high on his upside with the company, or does any of this ring a bell?
1: No, it rings a bell because Sean and I were friends. You know, we had worked together in WWE. Uh, Sean lived in Phoenix. When I was working with WWE as a talent, My first, I refer to it as my first run. Um, I was living in Scottsdale, Arizona, and, and so was Sean. So, we were often you know, on the plane ride home after Monday Night Raw together. and i I never knew Sean Morley before getting to WWE, but subsequent to uh, working with him in WWE and just spending you know four and a half hours on a flight with him in first class, you know every week, we became pretty good friends. and uh, i I, w- I was excited about Sean. I, I thought that Sean had some potential. Not some potential. I thought he had great potential in TNA. But timing, chemistry, expectations, whatever, were all kind of out of whack. The timing wasn't quite right. The creative, certainly, to bring him in wasn't quite right. And that was by no fault of his own. Um, and, And we were bringing a lot of people in all at the same time. You know, when Hulk came in, you know, there's a period of time where it is a honeymoon period with someone like Hulk Hogan, and particularly with the Dixie Carter and, and, and to a degree myself, I, I, I fell victim to it too. You know, when I first brought Hulk in, in, in 94, um, you, you get excited when he gets excited, you know, you feel positive when he feels positive. And mm-hmm. with a guy like Hulk Hogan, who's had, you know, probably other than a rock and Steve Austin, um, and Cena more success and relatively speaking, probably more success, um, in the ring than, than, than those guys. Um, you tend to, you know, listen. And I know that when Hulk came in, he was super high on Jeff Hardy and Jeff Hardy had been in TNA previously and then went back to WWE and had left WWE and was available. And Hulk, I remember every time I talked to Hulk going into this period, so all I wanted to talk about was Jeff Hardy and AJ Styles. We'll get more into that in a bit. Uh, Sean Morley was another guy that you know he was pretty positive about. Kenny Anderson was a guy <clears throat> that we were very high on. We had worked with uh, Ken. I promoted a, a tour of Australia in whatever year, 2009, I think, uh, there was a lot of great talent on that card. I think Sean Morley was on that card as well. Um, and Ken Anderson was, Lacey Von Eric was, she was a hoot. Oh my God. Was she a hoot? Oh, miss her. <laughs> She's fun. That girl could party. Oh my God. <laughs> but she, I mean, and I, like, nothing crazy, you know, nothing, you know, not safe for a work environment or anything like that she just could light up a room. She had such an amazing sense of humor. Nothing, her, she, she would say anything that would come to her mind. And, you know, Lacey, and I know we're talking about Sean Morley here, but I get a little off track. Lacey was, so. first of all, she was stunning. She, I mean, she was a very, very attractive young lady. And, but she had a mouth like, you know, a garbage truck driver. No offense to any garbage truck drivers, she she could be foul. I mean, to the point where I would get embarrassed, you know, and and as, as would a lot of boys, because <laughs> you just don't expect it. But anyway, there was a there was a large group of people that were part of that Australian tour, and Ken Anderson being one of them, uh, that we were excited about bringing in to TNA because we, you know, we looked at it. If we meaning Hulk Hogan and I, we looked at okay, there's an opportunity here. You know they've got Viacom. For crying out loud, they've got a strong relationship with Viacom, and Viacom really, really wanted TNA to work. Really wanted it to work. That's you know get a little sidetracked here. That's one of my biggest frustrations with my relationship with TNA management at that time. wasn't because they weren't smart enough. wasn't because you know they disagreed with some of my ideas or whatever it's because they blew so many opportunities that are really, really hard to recreate. And and I saw that happening from day one, but the, Viacom was really excited. I mean, they, they put their money where their mouth is. They paid for Hulk and I, they paid for, you know, some of the other top talent. Um, th- They were willing to invest serious money into marketing and promotion. That was really TNA's responsibility. I mean, yeah, well, th- that'll be a topic for another show because it's a, it's a big topic, but Viacom was there and we, we're just sitting back looking at this, you know, candy store and going, okay, wait a minute, we got to organize the candy. You know, we got to put the Hershey's Kisses over in this bin. You know, we got to put the chocolate bars over here. We got to we got to get our inventory lined up here so that we can maximize this opportunity. And and Ken Anderson and and Jeff Hardy, Ric Flair, who was also part of the Australian tour, and was available. Uh, Sean Morley, they were all part of that effort.
0: It's just. Uh, it seems like the more we talk about it, it's a uh, it's a pretty convoluted organization. And, and it feels like, uh, I don't know. It doesn't feel like WCW, but it does feel similar to WCW in that. I mean, on the outside, we're all led to believe that you're one of the, uh, one of the power brokers and here on the show kind of saying that wasn't exactly the case. And, you know, I know.
1: Some no, of- what? Look at what wasn't the case. I and mean, you know, at some point I'll even, <laughs> I think I could do this without getting sued. There, there's language in an agreement that I still have that reflects that, and that language put, was put in there by me and my attorney. That wasn't a that wasn't a TNA, you know, ask. That was my demand as part of this equation. But again, you know, and this is the funky part of I think wrestling in general is, especially with someone like me, um, who uses their real name and their previous real history and you weave it into a make-believe storyline, the audience, even really intelligent members of the audience, uh, sophisticated viewers, as well as people who think they know what's going on in the industry and write about it, they get sucked into it and they don't know what's live or what's Memorex. They don't know what's real and what's make-believe they get sucked into the gray area and then they start writing about shit that they know nothing about and putting out a narrative that's anything but true. But look, it was my fault. You know, we did it, (laughs) you know, as you pointed out by, by taking that authority position and, and which was a reflection of the history that I had with Hulk and WCW. And it was a, to a degree, a reflection of the role that I played in WWE as a general manager. I was the authority figure. Nothing new here, folks. Nothing, nothing new at all. Um, But as a result of that, yeah, the, the, the real relationship between myself and TNA was quite murky.
0: Were you excited to see some Chinese pro wrestling when AEW announced they would be featuring Chinese wrestlers on their program. You can watch Chinese pro wrestling right now by checking out middle kingdom wrestling that's MKW MKW is the top wrestling organization in China today. It's a unique pro wrestling company with Chinese characteristics. Featuring one of the most internationally diverse rosters in wrestling today from nearly 30 countries so far, MKW has showcased, developed, and promoted wrestling in other countries like Nepal, Vietnam, Thailand, South Korea. And with a more particular focus on countries that are a part of China's one belt, one road initiative, MKW live broadcasts in China consistently attract millions of fans, often reaching 10 million concurrent viewers. Before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, MKW was on track to host the first ever all-women's wrestling tournament in China, and we were also planning a Malaysian wrestling tour in the first half of 2020. Of course, those plans will return as soon as it's safe again. MKW prides itself on cultivating the development of pro wrestling in China and in countries where wrestling is still underdeveloped or not quite widely known yet. By joining the MKW fan community, you too are helping pro wrestling develop around the world. Check out MetalKingdomWrestling.com or just look for middle kingdom wrestling on youtube and facebook it's mkw china on instagram or mkw wrestling on twitter and we thank them for sponsoring the podcast let's uh let's talk about the show uh, it opens with the uh, big surprise in the first five minutes that hogan and abyss versus flares and styles that match is going to open the show uh flares out here and he's taking crazy bumps all over the place. And this is the first time a lot of people have seen him wrestle in a couple of years. Uh, he takes a big backdrop from Abyss. And Meltzer would say he was fine the next day. But how can a 61-year-old take these bumps after 38 years? He used a low blow on Abyss and Styles went to work. Hogan couldn't move and Styles gave him an enziguri. The lights went out and Sting showed up to a big pop. Sting then attacked Abyss and Hogan with the bat. Flair and Styles continue the beat down. Styles hits Abyss with a hard chair shot to the head. Flair hits Hogan with a very safe chair shot to the head, and Hogan juices. The match goes to a no contest in four and a half minutes. Hogan then said it wasn't over. There's was going to be a no DQ match, and it's going to be later in the show. And then afterwards, we would see Sting in the back, and Dixie Carter confronts him. He grabs her, shoves her against the wall, and says he owes her nothing. So to unpack what we've just seen here, in the opening segment of the very first show, head to head, we've got Hogan and Flair in action. Hogan taking or Flair taking big bumps, Hogan bleeding, and Sting turned fucking heel in the first segment. This is uh y'all are like shooting the moon here, are you not? Yep. That's that
1: I think if you if you Google hot shot angle <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a scene from this would come up, <laughs> definitely, definitely, um, way, way too hot of a hot shot, no doubt about it.
0: Uh, Messer would say Flair and Styles did an interview that had the feel of an interview on a Mid Atlantic Championship Wrestling show from the early '80s. That's a compliment, uh, and he says Abyss was screaming about what Sting did, Brooke Hogan and Jennifer Hogan's fiancee, who looks far too much like Brooke. We're backstage. Brooke was unhappy while Jennifer tried to calm her down. Brooke is trying to explain to Jennifer that Hulk just puts on a facade, but he's really hurt and shouldn't wrestle. It was just weird in a sense because everyone knows Brooke, but why should the TV audience have a clue who this other woman is? That's a melter criticism, but you're trying to sort of blur the lines of reality and, uh, you know, where does, where does wrestling and showmanship stop and where does the real life begin? whose idea is it to involve Hogan's real life family? I mean, so obviously something you sign off on, is that something that's brought to you or is this something where Hogan wants to, you know, introduce the world to his new wife and, uh, maybe brush up Brooke a little bit for TV.
1: Well, again, to, to be clear on my role, you know, uh, with regard to Hulk, my role was to oversee the creative for Hulk Hogan. That by no means is to suggest that I had final approval over it as it related to anything that Hulk did, there's only one person that had final approval and that was Hulk. So while I may sign off on an overall angle or story as I did here, when I say sign off, I mean, you know, my, my, the, the version of me signing off was getting it all laid on paper, vetting it, filtering it, going through it, presenting it to Hulk. And then he'll make whatever changes or not that, that he sees fit. So it would have been – look, there's no way that J- Jennifer would have been on camera if that wasn't Hulk's wish and goal. And by the way, I'm going to say I know Jennifer fairly well. I don't know her really, really well. But uh, she's not – she doesn't like the camera. Right. She she doesn't want to be in the public eye. You know, she does. She has. She'll do red carpets. She'll – you know, go to public events with Hulk knowing that there's going to be cameras there and things like that because she's his wife and he goes to these events and she's going to be with him. So you have to, you have to get used to that to a degree, but she hates it still does did then even more than she does now. Um, but that was something that, you know, Hulk felt strongly about obviously Brooke, um, quite a few people had gotten to know Brooke as a result of, you know, Hogan knows best on VH one. Um, but yeah, that was, that was really Hulk's idea.
0: Let's, uh, let's keep going through the show. Uh, Kazarian does an interview talking about why he quit the company two years ago and Meltzer would say it kind of killed the live crowd since they all knew he never left. He said he wanted to rebuild the X division leading to an X division chant. Daniels, who's back to having a first name said he was the real X division star. He was there from the start and the longest reigning champion. Of course, having the ex champion lose on TV in a minute, a few days earlier, gave them lots of credibility here. Doug Williams comes out and it ends with a three-way argument until Bischoff orders a title match. Bischoff does a promo about how the X division wasn't the heart of TNA, but it was the adrenaline. And I know you've sort of poked fun at the X division, uh, the name, but they did produce some incredible content. Uh, what's the thinking here in, in these three players? I mean, obviously some of our listeners may not be familiar with Doug Williams, but one hell of a performer and, uh, the other two guys, I think everybody knows from their most recent AEW work, of course, Christopher Daniels and Frankie Kazarian, friends of the show. Why these guys, why in this spot are they selected here?
1: Yeah. I've always liked Doug Williams. I think he's a a, a tremendous athlete. And again, you know, TNA was in in a similar position in some respects as WCW was early on, 93, 94, WCW, where we really saw a lot of opportunity internationally. But in order to to really um, take advantage of that opportunity, you've got to have – indigenous talent you know you got to have people from the market and doug williams was somebody he was i believe he was still living in the uk at the time um if not he was at least going back and forth was a guy that you know dixie felt strongly about and dixie dixie more than any of us dixie loved the uk and I, i don't mean loved it because she liked going there to shop and eat but she loved doing business in the uk and i think that you know was evident 2010 and all the way through to the point where she no longer ran the company or sold it out or whatever she did with it. Um, so that was the idea is let's broaden our international appeal by broadening our talent pool to include more international talent. Um, the X division, you know, to me, and I know I beat it up a lot and I, and i it's going to sound like I am here. The idea, it was a cruiserweight division. Let's just, Call it at least initially
0: Yeah.
1: what they were. Tr- they were trying to recreate prior to all kind of getting there. They were trying to recreate the success of the cruiserweight division. Mm-hmm. What they forgot to do, though, was distinguish it in any way, shape or form from anything else on the show by allowing guys like Abyss to compete in it. You know, it didn't matter how much it didn't matter how big you were, what your style was. You know, you were in the X division and I, I, one of the first things I did when I got there is I said, okay, what, you know, what is the X division to you guys? What does it mean to you? How would you describe the X division to someone who isn't a wrestling fan or isn't, or is a wrestling fan, but not a fan of TNA? How would you do it? And the response I got back would sound something like, well, it's, you know, the division without a division. You know, a division where the rules are there are no rules. Well, that's a hardcore match, Uh, or that's an ODQ match. Yeah, yeah, but you know, the the action's better. Well, how and why? What you know, you got to have an identity. You've got to, if you're going to market anything. If I'm going to market a pencil to the general public, I've got to figure out what unique property, uh, what unique selling benefit uh, does this does this have? What makes it unique? And there wasn't any because, again, this goes to the lack of vision overall. Vision is a word that people often use and can be applied in many different ways. But if you can't for me, I'll just speak for myself. If I can't see a picture that's crystal clear in my mind, well, then there's no way I can describe it to somebody. If I, if I see something in my head that looks like a, a static picture or, in some cases, a movie, right. a short movie, I can – in the case of a movie in my head, that's basically a storyline or an angle. Um, but if I can't – if I don't have a crystal clear vision in my own mind of what I want something to be, then there's, number one, no way I can communicate that to anybody else. And if I can't communicate to anybody else, how the fuck is it going to end up on TV? And what you end up with is just a hodgepodge of what everybody interpreted as their version of a cruiserweight division. And to me, that represented a real loss of opportunity because the cruiserweight division, the X division could have been even more important to TNA than the cruiserweight division was to WCW because there was a broader pool of talent that could have more easily fit into the X division division, if indeed there was a, you know, a weight limit, <laughs> I guess, or, and a, more importantly, not just the weight, a style
0: a focus that came, sorry. A focus.
1: Yeah. A focus. And, and, and again, there wasn't, it was just a hodgepodge, whatever anybody thought was a good exhibition match on any given moment on any given day, you know, ended up on TV and it, it was a huge lost opportunity. I'm sorry for going off in the weeds.
0: No, all good. Let's uh, let's get to the, the results of the match. Williams retains the X title in this three-way, uh, and he, he gets a clean win with a Chaos Theory suplex. And after the match, Shannon Moore comes in and uses a spinning head scissors on Williams. This is all directly from the Observer, by the way. And he would write, Moore had his same spiked hair as WWE. Crowd didn't really react to Moore. Bischoff then announces Williams versus Moore for the title at Destination X, which we've recently covered. Uh, the announcers tell us that Dixie Carter was so mad she's going to make a match for Sting. She said Steve would wrestle but wouldn't say who. Then Mike Tanay would announce that Awesome Kong and Hamada were stripped of the knockout tags because they hadn't defended them in 30 days. Of course, Kong is no longer with the company. Um, Essentially, it's written in the Observer. She asked for a $100 per night raise at the time when the company wasn't thinking about giving her a raise and she had already quit. So. We've covered a little bit of that, but it's just a weird story. Uh, next up, we do see the knockout tag titles, uh, up on the line for velvet sky and Madison rain. They're a tag team here and they're going to pick up a win over, uh, Taylor Wilde and Sarita. And of course, Tara and Angelina love two minutes and 14 seconds. Meltzer would describe it as short and sloppy. Uh, this is a weak point. You know, it feels like there's, uh, a lot of talent here, but. I don't know that they got enough time. Is this just out of obligation? You feel like you've got to have the ladies with a segment on the show. Did you guys not have confidence in them? Why do you think this was six folks in a two minute match here?
1: Not sure. You know, I went back when you you let me know that this show was uh, on the schedule for us to review and talk about. And I went back to the uh, TNA app or impact, I should say, I'm sorry, to the impact app um, and wanted to watch it to refresh my memory. And the show doesn't exist for whatever reason. Um, they kind of jump from 2009 to 2015. Um, so I, I wasn't able to go back and watch the show to kind of jog my memory f- from two decades ago. It's hard to hard to believe this was 20 years ago, right? 2010? Oh, my God. Ten years ago. No, ten years ago. Ten years ago. Whew. thought, my God, I'm older than I thought I was. <laughs> But, but, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, to remember the details of this format and, and why the match only got two minutes. Um, I, I would suggest that. I don't know. I'd be taking a guess. I don't like taking guesses. So
0: next up, I don't know. we've got Pope D'Angelo doing a promo for a match with Desmond Wolf later in the show, Wolf comes out and attacks his bad leg, punching it with a chain, slamming it into the steps, of course, the match never happens. Uh, and later in the show, they explain it's because De Niro was injured. Then we see a beautiful people celebration with uh, champagne and Jeremy Borash. And the idea is that the champagne represented something else exploding. The funny part is, it was a dud, so she poured it over Borash's head. So the idea is, Borash is just so excited by these beautiful women that the champagne cork explodes and makes a mess everywhere. And it's supposed to be a double entendre of sorts and that doesn't happen. So she just dumped it over Borash's head. Got to call an audible here. Probably the right one, huh?
1: So if I'm picturing this right, because I wasn't able to go back and watch it on the impact app. That sounds to me like Borash experienced, metaphorically speaking, premature.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you got it. Yeah. We're on the same page. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, well. Eh. (laughs) Yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't my deal. You know, that wasn't a Hulk Hogan storyline and the beautiful people weren't working with Hulk Hogan. And in 2010, I wasn't in charge of anything other than the Hulk Hogan storyline. So I don't know who wrote that. I'm guessing his initials were VR. Um, sounds like a Vince Russo type of gimmick. Um, but I, I'm not even sure of that.
0: Next up, we get RVD and sting. The match goes nine seconds. And RVD wins. Were right. This was hilarious and sad. Sting came out and Taz talked about how Sting had never been received like this. The problem was Sting got thunderous cheers and people were bowing as opposed to treating him like a guy who had just turned. He was cheered so much that Taz had to backpedal and say that some people were still cheering him. The people went nuts for RVD as well, of course. And after the match, Sting attacked RVD with his bat, hitting him with shots to the knee, the chest, and acted like uh, he was leaving. The crowd was chanting RVD expecting a comeback sting left as three reps were yelling at him, Sting hit two with his bat and, uh, they spared slick Johnson. He comes back, starts hitting RVD more with bat shots. This brings Hogan out. And, uh, Meltzer would say, I thought it was stupid for RVD's debut for him to be the setup guy for Hogan. Why was there all this security stopping Hogan who runs the place was never made clear. Then Bubba the love sponge came out and tried to stop Hogan. Sting continued to attack RVD. As Hogan is being held back, Sting hit him with the bat in the stomach. Security pulled Hogan away and Sting hit him again. RVD never makes a comeback and never does a promo vowing revenge on Sting, nor had anything to do with the angle at the end of the show. I was dumbfounded watching this, but by the end of the show, it made even less sense. What can you tell us about this?
1: God, I got confused just listening to it. I mean, what a clusterfuck. Um, it certainly wasn't well thought out and that would have been, you know, in part my responsibility because it involved Hogan. Um, but I, I,
0: uh,
1: creating excitement for the sake of excitement, you know, introducing RVD in a hot way, uh, fuck, I don't know what we were thinking, but it was bad. have yeah, to admit it.
0: It was just, I don't know. I mean, it feels like, Hey, we want to get sting involved with the main event stuff. I get it, but. Why put RVD in this spot? I mean, I guess he did get a win, but I don't know. Comes off a little weird, but next up is something else. A little weird. Kevin Nash and Eric young come out for a promo. Nash says that he had a one day contract for Scott Hall and Sean Waltman to face them at destination X and hall talks a lot. Uh, Meltzer would say he looked like an aging wino, but was seemingly half lit up instead of fully lit. Like his previous appearances, Hall got all of his lines out. Fine. Maybe even better than fine saying he and Waltman were, Wanted to go into TNA because TNA is so cool. Now Hall said they would wrestle under one condition that if they win, they get the fat contracts that Bischoff writes and Nash said he could make that happen. Bischoff appears on the screen and agrees to it. But if Nash and young, win, hall and Waltman have to leave kind of like how Jericho had to leave raw, I think, uh, hall and Nash shook hands. Young went to shake hands with Waltman, but Waltman slapped him in the face and they have a pull apart and Bischoff orders the two in a match. So it's going to be Eric Young and Sean Waltman. They go a minute and twelve seconds. And Meltzer would say the crowd was uh, hot coming off the pull apart. Waltman misses the Bronco Buster in the corner, and Young pins him with a pile driver. Uh, I don't know. I mean, let's talk a little bit about Hall and Nash and and Sean Waltman. These are guys who uh, we are all familiar with from the Monday Night Wars. Um, they help sort of. Launched WCW into the stratosphere with the NWO. What's the thinking in bringing them in here and how much criticism, uh, were you personally getting and, and, uh, how much of the muck and mire were you in over the decision to use these guys?
1: I mean, I was definitely a part of the decision because again, it, it, it directly or indirectly was going to end up affecting Hulk's storyline. At least that was the intention going in. So I would have been a part of that. I can't wash my hands of it. I can't deny, you know, participating in it. Um, on the other hand, I would say I didn't, you know, to answer your question, I don't I don't recall getting a lot of heat for it. Keep in mind, you know, TNA, as I pointed out, you know, and again, the narrative is, always, oh, Bishop brought all his friends in, Hogan brought all his friends in, tried to recreate WWE, brought all these ex-WWE stars. That shit was going on long before we got there.
0: Right.
1: Uh, Nash was working there long before I got there and Hogan got there. So the the Sean Waltman, Kevin, um, excuse me, the Sean Waltman and Scott Hall editions were, eh, Sean was still working great at that time. Um, he, there was no reason not to bring Sean in. Scott was a little, that was a little tentative. We all knew it. You know, he was still struggling much more so than he is now. Um, Scott was still very much struggling with his sobriety and staying away from things that he should have stayed away from. So we knew it was hit or miss. Kevin kind of assured us. And my experience with Kevin and Scott in the past was that for the most part, big grumpy, as we used to call Kevin, uh, was pretty good at, at managing Scott, at least for short periods of time where we needed it. And when Scott was on his game, he was pretty damn good, even in 2010. So yeah, yeah, we took the risk. But I don't recall getting a lot of heat for it, to be honest with you.
0: Did you know that up to 80% of the immune system is influenced by the gut? Or that supporting the immune system through proper diet and digestive health enables pets to better fight environmental allergies? Solid Gold is passionate about gut health because a healthy digestive system positively impacts the immune system and overall wellness of pets. Solid Gold was the first holistic pet food company in America, started way back in 1974 by Sissy McGill. Sissy was a trailblazer and a pioneer who disrupted a male-dominated industry and created a natural pet food before it was cool. Sissy was inspired by European pet food and the fact that European Great Danes outlived their American counterparts. Her first recipe, Hund and Flocken, has now provided high-quality nutrition and digestive health for over 20 generations of dogs. Solid Gold's nutritional platform is inspired by their founding belief that high-quality food is the best way to impact your pet's mind, body, and spirit. For over 45 years, Solid Gold has revolutionized the holistic pet food category, and they have a recipe for any dog or cat's dietary needs, including healthy, whole-grain and grain-free options, wet food, supplements like sea meal, and 100% human-grade bone broth for dogs. Solid Gold Foods are different because they cleanse the digestive system with whole superfoods, balanced with living probiotics, and, of course, fuel with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids, supporting gut health and nourishing your pet both inside and out. And right now, to see the Solid Gold Deal of the Week, go to solidgoldpet.com 83weeks. That's solidgoldpet.com 83weeks to see the deal of the week. Remember, that's solidgoldpets.com 83weeks. One minute and 12 seconds, uh, man, these matches are, uh, I mean, I know it's a wrestling show, but this feels like as Pat Patterson would say more Gaga or as JR would say more sizzle than steak. I mean, the ladies got two minutes and 14 seconds sting and RVD get nine seconds, Eric Young and Sean Waltman get a minute and 12. What's going on, man? Always leave him wanting more. (laughs) Uh, next up is the whole crew of soldiers in uniform flanking Kurt angle. Angle does one of these, uh, interviews where he's talking about patriotism and soldiers and Meltzer says it almost always works. And it did here. He talks about how the soldiers put their lives on the line for our freedom and how Mr. Anderson spit in their face by disrespecting the tags. Anderson appears on the screen, doing a promo saying all these guys are high school dropouts. Uh, angle runs backstage and attacks him and starts beating him, uh, in the ring. And then Anderson, uh, comes back out and knocks angle out with his own dog tags and went to leave the soldiers blocked the way he has to go back into the ring. They're almost acting like lumberjacks here. And, uh, Meltzer would say this was so much like an angle blow off as opposed to building a future match because angle is standing over a fallen Anderson, holding the flag and the troops are putting angle on their shoulders and carrying him around the ring. It's quite the visual. But uh, I kind of agree with Meltzer's criticism That this feels like a blow-off rather than the kickoff. off Let's say you I agree
1: I agree, which doesn't happen that often, does it?
0: No <laughs> I, I, I almost... Not that you
1: and I don't agree But, you know, in listening to uh, Dave's recap And and positioning of it I, I can't disagree um, That would have been a beautiful blow-off As opposed to you know the opening moments of Act One.
0: It's a pretty remarkable, you know. Scene, uh, go out of your way to uh, throw it in your Google Machine. It's out there. Uh, it's not on the Impact Out, but you can find it, and it's kind of cool to see all the soldiers have uh, Kurt Angle on their shoulders. Backstage, we've got Bubba trying to uh, talk Hulk Hogan out of wrestling. Earl Hebner comes in. He's looking for his job back. Hogan at first blows him off, but then Bubba gives a speech about how everyone deserves a second chance. He noted he got a second chance on radio and Hogan is in TNA getting a second chance in wrestling. So Hogan okay's it and tells Hebner to referee his match, uh, but that if he was hurt, he wanted Hebner to stop the match. And uh Meltzer would say, Isn't that the opposite of what a babyface should say? Of course, this related to nothing that would actually happen in the match. This was just so beyond logical. Meltzer would continue, the ref Hogan fired because he took a bribe from flair and screwed angle out of the title as getting rehired and refereeing a match with flair. The problem is they fired Hebner in storyline with absolutely no logical idea on how to give him his job back. Hebner had gone heel several times before in TNA because they can't help, but recreate Montreal. And when they do their next restart, they probably won't be that long from now. Having Hebner recreate Montreal will probably happen all again. This was all just so stupid. Uh, it is interesting. I mean, I guess, And maybe we should just back up. Do you think at this point, creative was sort of using this as a reset button, this move to Monday nights, because it feels like, you know, the hope is we're introducing a lot of new characters to a new audience for the first time who maybe are checking us out that didn't see us before. So if that's the case, we could use a little creative license to sort of hit the reset on some storylines, much like you did with Vince Russo back in 2000, where you got stripped everybody of the belts and held new tournaments and just started fresh. Maybe it's not explicitly said like that, but do you think that was some of the thinking in a move to Monday night?
1: I think it could have been. Uh, Clearly, we were in a showcase frame of mind. It's like, in in good call on your part, you know, the reset comment. Uh, And and I don't think that was consciously we didn't all sit around and go, okay, we've got to reset the show. We've got to recreate what we did in 2000 with WCW and the New Blood. It wasn't that, but we were bringing in a lot of new talent. Uh, that had not been a part of TNA previously, uh, and high-profile talent. You know, Rob Rob Van Dam was still pretty hot topic, yeah, and, and had pretty high equity back in 2010. As did you know, Ken Anderson, as did Jeff Hardy certainly, even though Hardy had been in TNA previously. So there was a lot, of, you know, Ric Flair coming in. There was a lot of big-name talent that were coming in for the very first time, and yeah, it was it was a hot-shot show. Um, make no mistake about it, and I think you're right. Probably consciously or subconsciously, it was like, okay, let's just showcase the best stuff we've got and kind of reset. And yeah, don't know a better way to describe it.
0: What do you think about uh, Hogan's comment? Hey, if I'm hurt, you got to stop the match.
1: <laughs> funny,
0: <laughs> funny. That's really true. Funny,
1: you know that the. You know what? I mean, there were a lot of things that were confusing and and just. Illogical and not well planned in in the angle in a scene that you just described, but to me the very it was not because I think he's just a low life piece of shit, but Bubba the Love Sponge.
0: Yeah, you need a- everybody deserves a second chance.
1: And, I mean, and again, for people that if all you know about Hulk Hogan is what you read about in dirt sheets or read about on the internet. You don't know Hulk Hogan. You don't even have a clue. Let me put it this way. You don't know Terry Bollea.
0: Right, right, right.
1: You may know Hulk Hogan, the character. Or you may think you do. But you do not know Terry Bollea. And Terry, one of Terry Bollea's, I, I think, I've been saying this. I used to tell him a long time ago. When I first started, well, about a year after I first started working with him, and I developed a relationship with Hulk where I could be honest with him and um, talk to him like, you know, a member of my family or a good friend or whatever, I, I used to say, Hulk, you're like a big fucking apple tree. You're like the biggest apple tree in the middle of a beautiful field. And you have all these people underneath that apple tree constantly shaking it, hoping that an apple is going to fall in their lap.
0: Yeah.
1: And to, to, to that's a visual to me that describes Hulk Hogan. And then and and, and to, to a lesser degree now, because he's after all these years, he's finally <clears throat> recognized it. But Bubba was one of those guys that was constantly shaking Hogan's tree, hoping that an apple was going to fall on his lap. He did it on his radio show. He abused Terry Bollea.
0: Absolutely.
1: He he abused him. He exposed him in a, in a at a point in time when Terry was at his. I hate to call him Terry, when Hulk was at his absolute most vulnerable um, because of the pain, because of the prescription drugs, because of the booze that went along with it, and because of all the emotional train wrecks that he was trying to navigate. Um, he was really, really vulnerable and easy to take advantage of. And Bubba, you know, took advantage of him. You know, he, he was like a brain surgeon, picking him apart and using Hulk Hogan to further his own career. And that was happening here too. You know, that was going on on Bubba's radio show, you know, Hulk or Bubba using Hulk Hogan on his morning radio show, um, talking about things that Hulk should have never been talking about in the middle of a bunch of lawsuits and a divorce. Um, and it was happening here as well. You know, Bubba used, Hulk Hogan to get himself on TV because he wanted the exposure and he wanted to be on TV to help his radio show. So there was nothing I could do about it. You know, there was no convincing Hulk that that was a bad move because in Hulk's mind and to a degree he was right because Bubba's radio show at that time in 2010 was freaking hot. I mean, he was right under Howard Stern at the point at that point. So Yeah, there was great exposure. Yeah, there was a great audience. But...
0: There's a cost associated.
1: Yeah, it was a very high cost. And, And here's the highest cost. To the television audience, a large portion of which didn't listen to Bubba, the world did not listen to Howard Stern. Right. The world certainly did not listen to Bubba the Love Sponge. Many of them did, but not all of them. And of our wrestling audience, a very small percentage of them were fans of Bubba's radio show on Sirius. So there was, you know, Bubba played that really, really well. Hawk bought bought into it and we got saddled with the mission of trying to make it work.
0: You know, listen, every week I tell you that I can save you some money at savewithconrad.com, but I decided this week, let's do something a little different. Don't take my word for it. Let's read some five-star reviews that were just left this month for savewithconrad.com. Christopher in Indiana says the process was painless and easy, direct communication and quick responses to questions throughout the process. Honest advice put me in a position to save tons of money and pay off my mortgage quicker. Charles from Ohio. Jimmy is what made it great. He answered every one of my stupid questions with patience and grace. Randall from Ohio. Awesome. Right from the start, being out of state was no issue. First family made everything super easy and convenient They were available before, during, and after business hours. I cannot say enough good things. Brian from Missouri. Everyone was terrific to deal with. Jimmy was very professional and super easy to deal with. He answered all of our questions promptly and accurately. I would recommend Jimmy to anyone I know. Michael from West Virginia. Everyone was professional and made the whole process easy. The entire process took a month and every step of the way, someone was available when I had questions. Just an awesome company. Thomas from Tennessee, Derek was great to work with and made the experience easy and always reliable, always available to answer questions. Neil from Florida, fast, friendly, knowledgeable. Randall from Ohio, awesome right from the start. Being out of state was no issue. Steven from Ohio, simple, fast, no issues and blew my previous mortgage company out of the water with great customer service and were always quick to get back to me whenever I had questions. Robert from Indiana, easy to keep in contact. I was able to use email and text messages for most of the deal, which made this very easy to get done. Five stars. John from Ohio. I love the texting and easy communication from this mortgage team. Closing was simple and awesome as well. Brendan from Arizona gave us five stars and said, great communication, great response times, just an overall great experience. Austin from Florida says, Huge listener of Conrad's podcast and everything he says is true. He can help you save money and take years off of your loan. Jimmy was great to work with amazingly painless experience compared to others I've had. Thank you very much. And no, I should be thanking you guys. First of all, thanks for listening to the podcast. And second, thanks for trusting me enough to have a shot at saving you some money, but most of all, thank you for your business. And I hope you enjoy all of the savings that we provided for your family But if you're listening to this and you haven't gone to savewithconrad.com yet, what are you waiting for? We're licensed in more than 40 states. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And if we can't help you save money, we won't waste your time. But if you've got a 30-year loan, if you've got a second mortgage, if you've got credit card debt, you're overpaying your single biggest bill and you may not realize it. We're going to show you how to get the best interest rate possible and skip a couple of house payments. But in the process, you're going to save hundreds of dollars per month And more importantly, pay your house off faster with cheaper monthly payments. If you're serious about keeping more of your own money and getting out of debt faster, retiring on time, and eliminating your credit card debt, you should hurry to savewithconrad.com. Find out how much money you can save for free right now. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender, savewithconrad.com. It's pretty remarkable that... He was in wrestling, but, uh, he is, and that's TNA here. Let's, uh, let's talk about what's next on the segment. It's Jeff Jarrett and James storm. They're talking backstage. Jarrett doesn't want to wrestle storm, but he's forced to by Bischoff. He talks to storm, like a friend and figures out he's also, um, forced against his will here storm uh, Meltzer was right. Storm who is so ridiculously under pushed, It's not even funny said nobody tells him what to do, and when Bischoff suggested the match, he was glad to take it. Jarrett was mad, saying that when TNA started and Storm was a nobody, he handpicked Storm to be in the company and noted Storm actually started training to be a wrestler in his own father's backyard. Uh, And Meltzer would say this was the beer money he'll turn out of nowhere, which makes sense, given they were the biggest merchandise sellers and such an over babyface act. Storm said they've been forgotten of late. Well, except they just beat the tag champs on TV a few days earlier and have a title shot at the pay-per-view. And then Jarrett talks about how storm and Bobby, um, but this is Melzer's comment, you know, because Robert is a stage name. Like when Dixie calls sting Steve, that means we're shooting brother. Uh, Jarrett attacks storm and root attacks Jarrett. Um, Foley breaks it up. So Foley's here and we're turning beer money bad. And beer money has previously been a top act. We haven't spent a ton of time on this show talking about James storm, but I do want to just sidebar for a minute. When he first comes into TNA, he uh, is teaming with Chris Harris, America's most wanted. Uh, they're one of the, the bright spots in early TNA. Eventually he has a singles run becomes world champion. Uh, and here he's a part of beer money with Robert Roode uh, or Bobby Roode, who we now know in the WWE really, A special performer who carved out quite an niche for himself in TNA, but it doesn't feel like he's been able to sort of branch out beyond, uh, TNA and have that same sort of success. Why do you think that is? James storm looks the part has good matches. seems like he connects with fans. What do you think about it? That's, that's kept him from, uh, succeeding with other promotions the same way he did here at impact.
1: He gets in his own way.
0: How so? he really, really does. I've said
1: this before. You know, you go back and watch any James Storm match. Anyone go to, go to TNA, or excuse me, the Impact app. Watch any James James Storm match. You can tell when he makes his entrance what the finish is going to be. James Storm hates putting anybody over. Now he won't come out and say it. He won't do that. He's he's very um, he's artfully passive aggressive about it. And so much so that it's a running joke or was a running joke. And I like James as a person, you know, if he's probably going to hear this and A, he's not going to agree with it and B, he's going to be pissed off at me for saying it, but so what? Um, Sorry, James. It is what it is. Got to, got to, got to lay it out there like I see it, brother. Um, But it was, it was a running joke in, in TNA while we were there. He would, you know, you've heard the term boo-boo face. Yeah. Um, He he was, you know, he was the master of a boo-boo face. If if he was going over, man, he was on fire coming out to that ring. If he knew he was going over, if he knew he was doing a job, you could read it. You could read it from two miles away. And I think there's something, there's something about the way James looks at himself and his character, his character, not himself as a person, but his character um, that limits, that limited him. And I think it limited – look, he had a tryout at NXT, which could have easily, like it has for so many other people, led to a roster spot in WWE. Right. Certainly did did with Robert Roode. Um, But for whatever reason, James just – he had a hard time with it. And, you know, it's really fun. I'm going to tell you a funny story. This is a story I've never told anybody before. I'll think about this for another 10 seconds before I do it. You remember, and I still have heat with Scott Steiner to this day, to this day, but for a while, um, when Scott was let go from TNA, which by the way, I had nothing to do with oh. Scott Steiner, probably to this day still believes I did, but I didn't. Because Scott Steiner probably believed I was running things in TNA, but I wasn't. um, there was a match we were trying to get, we were working on getting James over and positioning for something. I'm not sure what it was. It might have been a match with uh, singles against Bobby Roode. Could have been. For whatever reason, we were, trying to get, we were trying to get James over. And we wanted him to beat Scott Steiner. Now, I'm not an agent. And I'm not going to sit down with two guys who have forgotten more about laying out a match than I will ever know in the next lifetime or two. Right. I I know, I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at and laying out matches and finishes and ways to achieve the ultimate goal during the course of a match is not, never has been, nor do I want to pretend it is my strong suit. So I would leave it up to the talent and, or the agent involved. And in, on this particular occasion, uh, we had had the show written in in such a way that James was going to go over Scott Steiner, and you know we told him early enough in the day and said, okay, you guys go figure it out, come back to me, let me let me know what you got, so we can smarten up the director, you know, David Sahadi, so we can make sure we capture it all. You know that was kind of the process, and James kept coming up to me throughout the day. You know, man, I don't know. Scott doesn't want to do anything. He, he just, he doesn't want to put me over. You know, I said, we'll go talk to him. You know, this is the story, you know, go have the conversation with him. And you know, this is what we're doing. Tell your agent, don't bother me with it. It's not my job.
0: Right.
1: Go figure it out. You know? And he came back to me like two or three times during the course of the day. And to, to the point where I figured it out, he just didn't, he didn't want to confront Scott. And I, look, I'm not going to blame him for that. You know, Scott could be really, really difficult when when he was in a certain frame of mind. So I'm not suggesting that James was afraid of, well, no, he probably was and He had every right to be, as did most people back then. But for whatever reason, he just, he, he wasn't going to sit down with Scott and, and work it out between the two of them. And I finally got involved and I said, Scott, this is what we need. And so I said, I don't want to do it. I said, okay, great. We'll find somebody else to do it. Meaning it's not that big a deal, Scott, that you get beat. It would have been nice. That's our first choice. That would have elevated James, but like the show's not going to stop. We're not going to have to replace the match because of it. So I said, no problem. If you're you're not going to do it, you're not going to do it. I'm not going to force you to do it. We'll find another opponent for James. That was it. And then like two days later, of course, all of this got back to TNA management, and Scott Snyder got fired. Well, <laughs> Scott Snyder figured I'm the one that fired him, mm. or, or or he blamed Hulk, and Hulk had nothing to do with it. Hulk was putting Scott over every opportunity at the time. Mm. Scott or Hulk really liked Scott, you know, and saw value in it. But because of the situation, because it is, I'm not blaming James, but he was involved in it because he just didn't have. Mm the determination, I should, I'll use that word, determination, to, to sit down and say, no, this is what we need to do. This is what, you know, this is what's on the show. Let's figure it out between us and do it in a way that's good for you and good for me and gets the job done. James couldn't do that. And, and I'll always remember that, not because of the heat that I took. And, you know, it did bother me because Scott, you know, he attacked my children, he attacked my wife, he, said a bunch of horrible shit and, you know, he he confronted, you know, Hulk's wife in an airport and made a bunch of threats and a lot of stupid, silly shit that I'm sure Scott probably regrets, um, at this point, or maybe not. I don't know. He's going to hear this. He'll probably stir it all back up again, but, um, it was all for nothing. You know, I, I liked Scott that day when he said, I'm just not going to do it. It's like, okay, well, at least bad enough to come and tell me he's not going to do it. That doesn't piss me off. Wasn't holding me up for money. Wasn't trying to get something more out of me. He just didn't feel comfortable doing it. And I said, okay, great. We'll find somebody else to do it. No harm, no foul. But that turned into, you know, Hulk and I firing him and, you know, a whole bunch of shit that had to that hurt a bunch of people other than me and and Hulk. But whatever. And 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 I think that's you know, I don't want to say that's the reason or, or that that trait or that inability to kind of stand your ground or communicate what needs to be communicated is the reason James hasn't really been able to transcend, you know, his career at TNA. But I do think there's, I talked about this a couple weeks ago and, and we'll probably touch on it here as well. You know, when, when it was decided and it was Hulk more than anybody and maybe Hulk exclusively that he really felt AJ should be the, next version of Ric Flair. Remember when we put him in suits and all of that. Yeah. One of the things that immediately impressed me about AJ is I knew he hated it. I knew he hated it. You could see it on his face. You could hear it in his voice. You could smell it on him. He hated it, but he did it and he did it as well as he could. Those kind of people, succeed because you're not always going to be asked to play a role that you love. You're just not, you're not always going to be asked to put somebody over that you feel like you should put over. Not every storyline you're asked to participate is going to benefit you. Right. And some people are really good at that and adapting to it and embracing it and making it work in the long run. And other people get a boo-boo face and I think that sums it up.
0: Well, I can feel myself getting uh, unfollowed by James Storm right now.
1: No, because look, it's it's just, you know, I don't think, to James's credit, James, n- now let's back it up a little bit because I do like James Storm as a person um, and, and as a professional in many respects. Despite what, what, you know, we all have flaws. Nobody's fucking perfect. James Storm isn't. I'm not, you know, nobody is. Um, but I think one of the things that would have helped James was to, would have been to have experience and or preferably success somewhere other than TNA because he, he, his success was born in a bubble. And he was never forced to think, perform, react, or understand things that were outside of his comfort zone. And that's just, you know, that's just a part of coming up in the business the way he came up in the business. He was fortunate in one sense to kind of start, you know, learning, training and, you know, Jerry Jarrett's backyard or Jeff Jarrett's backyard, whatever it was, and coming up with Jeff and having that proximity and the friendship with the Harrises, and, you know, getting the opportunity in TNA. And it was all right within the same zip code. He barely had to get any, he barely had to get on a plane or travel. It was all right there in his own backyard. And when you come up learning, experiencing, developing, uh, in, in such an isolated way, chances are pretty good that when the stakes get higher and the pressure becomes greater, you're not ready for it. And I think that's probably the safest way to describe it. And that's not a knock is by no means a knock. It's just, it, it was what it was.
0: Let's get to the match. Beer money beats Jeff Jarrett in a handicap match in four minutes and 16 seconds. Uh, Meltzer would write that Mick Foley's in a suit and tennis shoes, but he takes the jacket off to reveal the classic Foley t-shirt with referee stripes spray painted on to make him the referee Meltzer would write. They mostly beat up Jarrett as Jarrett made his comeback Foley went under the ring for a barbed wire baseball bat. He gives it to Jarrett and slick Johnson comes out, takes the bat from Jarrett and Foley and Johnson argue with Foley distracted rude, gives Jarrett a low blow and they did the DWI finisher on Jarrett and Johnson counts the pin a barbed wire baseball bat on the first episode, man, you guys are, uh, pulling out all the big guns, Foley sting barbed wire, bats, blood Flair, Hogan. Everybody's here.
1: Well, how could you have. McFoley on the show without a barbed wire baseball bat? No. Oh, yeah, it's like having a martini without an olive. Who the fuck does that? Uh,
0: Brooke in tears, begs Hogan not to wrestle. Hogan says he has to do it. Uh, he finally agreed to promise that this would be his last match ever. Meltzer would write, he'll probably wrestle again shortly, but from a storyline standpoint to me, the only way he should is as a, if a heel lays out Brooke and then he has to save her to break his promise. Uh, so a little fantasy booking from Meltzer there. Let's get to our main event. Hogan and Abyss on one side, and Styles on the other. They go seven minutes and 55 seconds. Meltzer would say Brooke who moments earlier was in tears and scared to death for her father wrestling was now instead in the front row cheering every move. Hogan rammed Flair into the guardrail. He's bleeding again. Flair gives Hogan a low blow. He and Styles beat on him. Uh, Hogan actually took a bump from Styles uh, on a punch and then a second safer bump in ultra slow motion, according to Dave Meltzer, from an incredibly slow snapmare from Ric Flair. Uh, Abyss used Hogan's comeback spot on Styles, and then Hogan gives Flair a high kick, and uh, Hogan whips Styles into Abyss. He gives him a black hole slam. There's your pin. Uh, Which Meltzer would say made sense since Abyss is getting the title shot at Styles. Wolf then hits Abyss with a chair. Flair beats down Hogan. Pope tries to make the save to no avail. Jeff Hardy shows up at the end and drops Wolf with an ugly looking face first suplex. Uh, He gives Styles a uh, twist of fate and goes to the top for the swanton. But the show ends with Hardy just before jumping. So the big moment at the end of the show, after you've, it feels like, man they can't possibly crowbar another star in here, you know, stings here, Hogan flair, Rob Van Dam Foley. Well, here's another one. Jeff Hardy returns quite the pop, certainly an impact favorite. Uh, what do you remember about the main event of this first Monday night war show? As we sort of broke it down here.
1: Well, it was look for what it was. It was like a kaleidoscope of excitement. Um, the match did make a little bit of sense given where we were going, but it really was a showcase moment. It was a hot shot showcase moment And des- and, and designed, frankly, to create a sense of an, uh, a, a, not a cliffhanger in a traditional sense, but to pack it with so much. have a surprise element, Jeff Hardy showing up again, uh, at the end of it that it left you feeling like I can't wait till next week. Now, as, as opposed to I've got to tune in next week to see what's going to happen, which would be a traditional cliffhanger. This was more about let's throw everything we've got up against the audience. Let's show them what we've got. Let's keep it exciting. Let's leave on a super high note so that they'll feel they, meaning the audience will feel the need to tune in to see what's next.
0: Well, that was a classic formula, you know, on nitro. I can't tell you how many nitros ended with a Pier six brawl. Uh, and this is a, an entertaining show. I'm not going to say that it's the best show ever. I feels like you guys are maybe trying too many things and just throwing everything against the wall, but you certainly make an impression that, man, these guys have a lot of stars, but I don't know that it really showcased everything that TNA did well, but you certainly strutted out the, the star power. When the show was over, what do you remember feeling? Was it high fives all around? Did you feel like you'd hit a home run? Were you satisfied creatively? <laughs>
1: Not really. I mean, I, I felt like we did the best we could with what we had. The, my, my, the underlying feeling uh, of my feeling about TNA as a product, not the people in it, the product itself never changed from the first day I stepped, you know, in, in, into the soundstage to the last day. Um, it, my feeling was no matter what we did inside of such an artificial sterile environment that didn't have the energy and the big feel of, um, you know, either WWE or even WCW. Um, we were never going to get where everybody wanted to be. You just can't get there. And I'm, I'm even more convinced of that today. And, and there was a point in time within TNA when things were running pretty well. Um, and, and one of these days I'll, I'll, I'll do an, um, I'll, I'll do a uh, everyshows.com com slash Patreon with Bully Ray, and we'll talk about Aces and Eights. And right around that time, I finally convinced TNA to quit producing their shows in a soundstage and take them on the road because the television product would be infinitely more attractive to the audience. And it worked. But that's a long-term strategy, and it takes a long-term investment. It's one of the reasons why I think AEW did such a phenomenal job coming right out of the shoot because they made the commitment. You know, you can't put a product on the air, a wrestling product on the air, and expect the audience to believe in it and to invest in it when you can't draw a crowd. It's just, there's a disconnect. Or in the cases we're watching right now, you can't even have a crowd through no fault of your own. And that, that stigma associated with the impact zone is what really, look, TNA and, you know, Vince Rousseau and all the old TNA diehards and well, whatever, the wrestling fans that think they know what they're talking about, you know, that think that, oh, if TNA would if they would have never brought in Hogan and Bischoff, you know, TNA, you know, it was, it was growing and growing. Fuck, if it was growing and growing, they wouldn't have brought us in. They had flatlined. They had reached a point where there was no longer any growth potential, which is why, they, why Viacom brought in Hogan and Bischoff and others, um, because they felt that star power would be enough to take them to the next level. What they learned and what WWE is learning right now and, a- and uh, AEW is aware of right now is that star power isn't enough. It's the backdrop, it's the audience, it's the scope, it's the size. Conrad, you've heard me give this analogy before. You know, it's like imagining, you know, your favorite main event from your favorite WrestleMania and watching that happen in a high school gym. It's just, eh. And that's what TNA was. Now, you could dress that pig up however you wanted. You could try to camouflage the reality of the situation, and which is what we did here. We camouflaged it with star power and crazy shit and some over-the-top stuff, you know, piece of shit radio host from Sirius Radio. We we did a lot of that. But you still – the pig is still a pig no matter how you dress it. And my feeling, although, you know, anytime you pull off a show and it comes together, you know, if it's a live show and it's an action-based show, it's a live action show – And it comes off even remotely close to what you had planned on paper. It's a pretty good feeling. You know, if you've ever done two hours of live TV, well, you know, I mean, even promoting sarcasm and producing sarcasm. God damn, if it comes off even close to what you envisioned or what you had on paper, you feel like you've knocked it out of the park
0: Right.
1: because it's hard. There's a million variables you don't have any control over. Sometimes some things are just out of your hands. You no matter how hard you try, how well you plan, something is going to go wrong. Well, that's really true with live television. So it makes it so much fun. Um, and I think it's what makes it appealing quite frankly to, uh, to a lot of the audience because the audience inherently knows that, you know, shit happens on live TV. That doesn't happen on a tape show. Just, it is what it is folks. Um, but nonetheless, you know, were, were we excited because we had all the star power and, you know, clearly the, the, the reaction, you know, of the audience, you know, in in the soundstage was very positive. And I think everybody was across the board pretty happy with it. I'm sure there was some talent that wasn't because they didn't get enough time to do the, to get their shit in <laughs> or to have a chance in fairness to them to, to, to put on a great match that would accentuate their positives I understand and that that's a valid bitch if if they had them but um, for the most part the feeling was pretty good in fact there was a party now maybe that was a January 4th show can't remember if it was a January 4th debut Hulk Hogan or if it was this uh, head-to-head show but there was a big all the you know the the Panda execs oh my god Ugh. I am going to refrain from further comment because I don't need to make any more attorneys rich, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, yeah. Yeah. I think the feeling was pretty good.
0: I hate Steven singer. You know what else? I hate everything that's happening in the world right now. Our hearts break for those that have lost loved ones, those who are ill, struggling, small businesses, and everyone affected by all this. Now, normally Steven is in the love business and the happiness business. And this is the time I would be telling you about Steven Singer's brand new 24 karat gold dipped rose from Mother's Day. But this year, it's different. Steven wants to put a little love in everyone's day. So he's using a portion of every rose sold to support independent restaurants by purchasing catering for all the incredible nurses, doctors, first responders, and hospital workers. And you can purchase a mint green rose, a frozen white rose, or any of Steven's other signature colors. Know you are sending. Love to the mom in your life, but also supporting local restaurants and thanking our essential workers. If you're looking to celebrate someone, simply say, I love you or honor your mom on Mother's Day. Steven Singer is shipping as fast and safely as possible in time for Mother's Day. Steven treats his customers as family, and we're here for you. Go to ihateStevensinger.com. Order by 2 p.m. Eastern this Wednesday, May the 6th, with free and touchless delivery in time for Mother's Day and include a free personalized message of love. That's I hate Steven Singer. But hop to it, man. You got to order by 2 p.m. Eastern this Wednesday, May 6th, and you'll get free and touchless delivery in time for Mother's Day all at ihatestevensinger.com. Let's uh, let's break down the segments here. Uh, on Raw, the first segment had the Undertaker Shawn Michaels interview. It does a 3.45 rating. Impact, of course, had the Hogan and Abyss best Flair Styles match with Sting turning heel. That did a .99 by comparison. Then raw had a women's match in segment two and a backstage segment with Chris angel and Hornswoggle that loses 450,000 viewers. The Meltzer would say you would think they switched to impact, which had the fallout of the sting heel turn him pushing Dixie Carter against the wall, a Flair styles, promo, a screaming and uh, Kazarian Daniels and Doug Williams arguing to set up a match, but that actually lost 14,000 viewers as well.
1: Can I stop you right there? Sure. And, and, and again, I'm not, uh, this is one, it's, you know, as we're recording this, it's Sunday morning. I typically try to reserve Sunday mornings for family time, to clear my head, to set myself up for the week that's about to happen and be as positive as I can possibly be, which I don't know if you've noticed or not, but I haven't taken any dumps on Dave Meltzer today. I have. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to start now. Just. So you don't have to you know plug your ears or take a shot of whiskey or anything like that. It's all going to be good. But there's a perfect example of, you know, not knowing what you don't know. You know, when, when Dave would say something like, well, you would think they would switch over to, you know, impact. Well, why would you think that? Would you think that the entire raw audience is aware that we're going head to head or care for that matter, even if they did know? We, this was the first one out of the shoot. And even though, you know, the, the internet community was talking about it and buzzing about it, that doesn't represent a large chunk of the national viewing audience. So we didn't expect, nor should have Dave or anybody else expect that we're going to be doing dueling remote controls and going clicking back and forth between two hot shows like the, we did with between Nitro and WWF in 97 and 98, or 96, 97, 98. That, that happened after we had been going head-to-head for quite a while and started really becoming competitive and then took over the ratings from WWE. That's when people started flipping back and forth, not initially, not initially. So again, that statement kind of serves to frame a narrative and position Dave as someone who you would think that the audience would immediately click over. Actually, I think that's kind of one of the most, um, naive statements. I said naive instead of anything else. Did you notice that naive? Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite as you know toxic as something that I would normally say, but that's one of the more naive observations, um, that I've heard is, you, you know, you would think, the audience would immediately flick over. I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? How much do you not know about television? Really?
0: Segment three, Raw has Big Show and Miz against uh, Morrison and R-Truth in a John Cena interview, and that picks up 187,000 viewers. Meanwhile, Impact had the three-way for the X title. That gains 28,000 viewers. Seg four was Chris Angel with William Regal and Skip Sheffield, who we know is going to go on to become Ryback followed by the beginning of the Randy Orton versus Ted DiBiase and Cody Rhodes match that loses 187,000 viewers impact has a, a three-way tag team knockout titles, match a Pope promo and the beautiful people celebration. And that actually gains 97,000 viewers. So even though we were sort of saying, man, it's a lot of people in here. Not a lot of time. What's the thinking there? Well, apparently the thinking is the ladies are ratings. Uh, segment five raw had the end of Orton, uh, DiBiase and Rhodes, and then a Batista interview, and that gains 372,000 viewers impact has sting versus RVD. And then the Hogan sting pull apart, but it gained zero viewers. Um, and I don't know what his issue here is, but Meltzer would write when you expect to gain sting meant nothing. Uh, segment six. Raw had the triple H Sheamus in-ring confrontation, Chris angels doing his trick with knives and, uh, Morella. And then that gains 249,000 viewers and part of the show that usually loses. According to Meltzer impact, meanwhile, had Kevin Nash and Eric young in the ring with Scott Hall and Sean Waltman. And then of course the young Waltman match and the whole Kurt angle, Mr. Anderson segment that quarter actually loses time. Uh, 56,000 viewers change the channel there. Seg seven is, uh, Evan Bourne versus William Regal, a WrestleMania video, a clip of Goldberg Lesnar, and then the Bret Hart McMahon video that loses 441,000 viewers, uh, on impact, we had Brooke begging Hulk not to wrestle and Jeff Jarrett fighting James storm that loses 110,000 viewers, uh, segment eight, we would see the beginning of Cena versus Vince. And that picks up 506,000 viewers on impact. We've got Jarrett versus beer money with Foley as the ref and, uh, Brooke begging Hulk not to wrestle that lost 264,000 and Meltzer would say was a 0.76 quarter, which was the lowest rating TNA had done in a long time. Um, and then segment nine, it's the rest of the scene events match with swagger, Mark Henry and Batista. It's going to pick up 568,000 viewers. It does a 3.92 overrun Impact meanwhile has Hogan and Abyss and Flair and Styles with the big Jeff Hardy run in, and three hundred and forty-seven thousand viewers are added for a one point oh one overrun. So, no surprise there. Uh, Jeff Hardy's ratings. When we run through sort of the breakdown, head to head, segment by segment, anything sort of stick out to you all these years later? Nothing really. I mean, it, uh, look,
1: <laughs> nobody went into this thinking we were going to compete favorably. With WWE, I said that at the very beginning of this episode. Right. That was that was not the expectation. It, it may have been Dave's uh, um, imagination, you know, running wild, and him, I guess, pretending he knew what our goal was. Um, but that wasn't it. Our goal was to create awareness, create a buzz, expose the product to people who might not otherwise have watched, to try to grow an audience. Of people that don't, you know, otherwise tune in every week, we knew going into it we we're going to get our ass handed to us. We're okay with that. Viacom knew that we were going to get our ass handed to us. They were okay with it. So it, you know, it wasn't surprising. Would would we have wanted to do better than we did? Of course. Who who wouldn't? But to suggest or to I guess assume that these numbers reflected any kind of you know. Ass kicking in our minds. Uh, well, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. We this was our first time out. You know, Nitro, Nitro. Nitro's first time out, we went unopposed, and we didn't do all that well. So, come on, it's it, it. It was the beginning of of you know an initiative, not the litmus test.
0: Let's talk about what Meltzer wrote when the show was all over. Oh, you're really you're
1: really testing me this morning, aren't you? Last uh, one, and
0: then I promise I'll okay. I'll,
1: I'll leave it alone.
0: Right. Ever since the company went to Spike TV, the goal was to move to Monday night. Well, be careful what you wish for. With Hulk Hogan's first nationally broadcast match in the United States in more than three years, and Rick Flair's United States coming out of retirement match, TNA Impact drew its lowest rating of the year, a point nine eight rating. For 1.36 million viewers compared to Raw's 3.38 rating and 5.1 million viewers. The USA Network sent out a press release noting that Raw beat impact by 274% in total viewers. There will be attempts to spin this in the sense that males 18 to 34 were up from the prior Thursday. Oh man. Uh but the males 18 to 34 the prior Thursday did well below what the show had been doing. Impact at a 0.92 in males, 18 to 34, and a 1.04 in males, 35 to 49. Like those numbers now, don't you? (laughs) Raw did a 2.9 in males, 18 to 49, and the impact numbers were considerably down from the January 4th show, down 46% in total viewers and 41% in 18 to 49 year old viewers, partially due to the shelf life of nostalgia for the nineties being over and also because of not taking that first unopposed hour. So Meltzer really thinks in hindsight, major mistake to not take that earlier hour in hindsight. Was that a misstep? Do you think? Mm. Yeah. Oh, wow.
1: yeah. I, I, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Um, it, it's really, you know, I like I, I've said this a million times. You know, I'll, I'm not a big football fan. I don't know fuck all about football, um, other than I'm a, you know, kind of a passive fan and viewer, and I don't really start tuning in to the playoffs, and then I get excited about the Super Bowl just like everybody else. So, given my comparative lack of knowledge of really f- football in general, um, I could be the winning coach of a Super Bowl 24 hours after it happened. I could t- I could figure out how to coach the winning t- I could figure out how to coach the losing team to be the winning team in any Super Bowl with 24 hour hindsight. Big fucking deal. Um but yeah, in hindsight, all that being said, sure. Um it, it certainly would have been worth a try. Maybe maybe a really smart, you know, to to actually, you know, give some credit to Dave here or partially at least. Um Maybe in hindsight, the smarter move would have been to take advantage of an earlier start and build that audience, and then go head to head. That would have been that could have made some sense, um, if our goal was to really compete with WWE, which it wasn't. That really wasn't our goal. So, you can you, you, look. You can look at it the city from any degree you want, any angle you want. Come up with all kinds of ways things could have been smarter, or better, rebooked, pick it apart. But we don't get the luxury of doing any of those things. But I, I do think, you know, had we had the goal of beating WWE, like, like I said, or competing with them long term. You know, I don't know, you know, you started that, you know, Dave commentary off by saying, you know, the goal you know, since the beginning of DNA was to go head to head with Monday night. I don't know that. I'm not, I wasn't aware of that. And that doesn't mean it's not true, by the way. I'm not saying it wasn't true. I'm just saying, I never heard that. You know, the, 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 the idea of going head to head to create a broader audience and to get some attention for ourselves was something that, you know, Came about as as a result of conversations between myself and Dixie and Hulk and 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 Scott Fishman and Kevin Kay. But um, if that was, you know, deep down inside, that was TNA's goal, and they used this opportunity to try to establish it. That's news to me.
0: Let's uh, continue with Meltzer's write up here. He says.
1: Um, you said there was only going to be one more, well, you cut, did,
0: I, did I interrupt you? You cut me off a little bit, but we're wrapping I'm it up here. I'm sorry. All right. Unfortunately, the rule of thumbs about nostalgia and entertainment has prevailed since that time. Nostalgia works well in small doses. Nobody was more aware of that than Hulk Hogan, who for the past decade would show up for brief periods of time. And as soon as he noticed he was overstaying his welcome, he'd find a reason to bail TNA got a few good weeks out of Hogan, but by this past Thursday, they were now below the level they were at the same time last year. And they had a far less expensive payroll back then. There are a lot of, up, es- up, 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 up. catch the flaw right there. Yeah. Because TNA uh, didn't have the
1: payroll mucker father. Come on, Dave, do some goddamn research. Pull your head out of your ass. Quit sniffing bicycle seats. All right. Do some work. Pick up a phone, ask a question, reach out, be a real damn journalist. God, God, you got me. You got me on a Sunday. On a Sunday, he pissed me off. It wasn't TNA's <laughs> payroll. You dipped shit.
0: Oh God. Get it
1: Right. Try once getting your shit, right.
0: All right. <laughs> you feel better, buddy?
1: Uh, I will in a minute. I'm going to go down and take a shot at Jameson.
0: Uh, there are a lot of mistakes made by TNA on March 8th. The first night of what is supposed to be a permanent move to Mondays, but Um, one that is no doubt already on the road to being evaluated. The March 4th television show was a terrible go home show. They opted for surprises, not announcing the return of Jeff Hardy or the debut of Rob Van Dam. Yeah, they probably should have promoted them. They should have shown that video telling people you won't believe what's happening in the first five minutes of their TV show seen by 1.49 million viewers, instead of putting it on YouTube and getting 45,000 people watching it, they made the mistake of believing people who were big stars a dozen years ago, were just as big a star today, as opposed to nostalgia acts people would want to see once, if at all picking nine to 11 instead of eight to 10 on Monday was a mistake. Keep on mind, Keep in mind. This number was drawn with Hogan doing nonstop interviews, plugging the show and wrestling with ads all over spike, plugging Hogan and flair wrestling. And with ads taken out in all the major markets during raw, telling people to switch channels to see Hogan and flair. What happens next week? But all of that misses the big picture. So as we said, this is not a move that's permanent. Uh, they go back to uh, Thursday nights on May 3rd. When did you realize shit, this was a mistake?
1: Um, well, I, I, I didn't think it was a mistake, honestly, <laughs> but I got a call from Dixie. I think it was from Dixie. Yeah. I would have it would have been Dixie, and I could tell by the shakiness in her voice that she was getting, she was becoming affected by the negative social media. Mm-hmm. She was, she was very vulnerable to that, and and we all are. As a you know, I, and I'm not going to say that I'm. I've gotten better you know, over the decades, I guess. Um, but um, she was new to this game. And didn't like being criticized, didn't like to be the subject of scorn and critique amongst the wrestling fans. You know, she liked to be the, you know, Southern Belle out at ringside, you know, being there cheering on her wrestlers. And she wanted to be loved. Nothing wrong with that. We all want to be loved. Um, It's kind of hard to do when you're in the wrestling business all the time, but nonetheless. And there was, you know, there was blowback from this probably, you know, some of it as a result of Dave's commentary and narrative about it. And she hated that. She hated it. And I could tell by the, the shakiness in her voice that she was having second doubts. And 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 in fact, I remember where I was when I got the phone call. I was, I was in, in, in the hotel room in Orlando, uh, Hadn't quite made TV or hadn't gotten into my car to head over to TV yet. And we were having a conversation and I could just, you just tell. Um, So I knew it was a short shot. Uh, I I, I wasn't going to fight. It wasn't a hill worth dying on for me because, again, the way we went into it was let's give it a shot, see how long it lasts, try to get some attention. If it works, great, it does. If it doesn't, boom, we're right back to where we were. No harm, no foul. It's kind of the way we went into it. And it, as a result of going into it with that kind of a, a, a of a perspective, what the fuck was I going to do? Argue with her? You know, I, it didn't matter that much to me. I was doing the best I could with what I had to work with. And deep down inside, I knew that it didn't really matter what we did. You know, we could work as hard as we could. We could try to improve the numbers as best we could. But until we made the real change, until we took the show on the road, until we put the, the, the product – in front of a live audience, any real audience, not cardboard cutouts that show up at a theme park because it's the most comfortable place to be in a warm summer day in in in, in Universal in Florida. Until that changed, nothing else was really going to change long term anyway. So for me to, you know, throw down and try to, you know, die not a sword, not, not for this. So I just, I, I went along with it.
0: Well, we took to Twitter and said, Hey, do you have a question for Eric about this show? If so, drop it here and, uh, we'll try to ask your question on the show. If you've got a question for next week's episode, uh, just follow us on Twitter and you'll see uh, an opportunity to ask a question near the top it's at 83 weeks. Um, and we'll tell you what's coming up here shortly, but first let's get through a few of these questions, Eric, we've gotten dozens. We'll try to pick a, a few here and hit the high points as fast as we can. Corey Illingworth wants to know: Do you think Abyss could have had potential in the WWE during this era?
1: I'm sorry. Could you re- request a, re- re- repeat that, please?
0: Corey wants to know: Do you think Abyss could have had potential in the WWE during this era?
1: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. In one of these days, I, I don't want to do it on this question because this this that question is a very good question, and I appreciate the the fan that sent it in, but it's one that's worthy of of a much deeper discussion. But I'll suffice to say yes, and I would look forward to exploring a conversation about abyss um, in the future. He's a good guy.
0: The man of the 90s writes, who said in 2010, hey, I know what will pop ratings. Somebody get knobs and sags on the phone. Of course, the nasty boys weren't on the show, but I think the gist is we're pulling out a lot of nostalgia. Maybe the criticism was there's too much of it. How do you respond to that criticism? Fuck off. Okay, Austin Smith writes. Which TNA theme song caught your ear as entertaining?
1: Mm, I mean, there were there were a few. I you know I don't remember what the names of them or whose they were. Um, But I'm not going to knock the music. There was you know there was a lot of effort and and talent that went into the music. Uh, They did you know they look. They were trying, they live in Nashville, you know, TNA management lived in Nashville. They were involved in the music industry peripherally, truth be known. Um, But nonetheless, they had access and they produced some good music and some of it I thought was pretty cool. Um, But I, I, you know, don't know the names of it or which talent was associated with it.
0: Apparently word is out. Gabriel PR says, wasn't Lacey Von Eric fun on set? Dude.
1: Well, on set she was okay. You know, because she, she, look, Lacey didn't have a lot of experience, and she knew that. And she really had, you know, she wanted to do well. Her her work ethic was really good, um, given her lack of training and experience and fundamentals. But nonetheless, she. She was, you know, once, once she got to the building and it was time to get out into the ring and time to work, she tried really, really hard to make up for her lack of training and lack of experience. She didn't get fun. till You got to the hotel afterwards. And then she was a hoot.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. That feels like a story for another day. Bad parent writes, whose idea was it to pair AJ with flair? It seems weird even now. Hulk's. Why do you think that is? I mean, do you know what's thinking there?
1: I think, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to speak for him. We didn't get deeply into it. Um, but I think, you know, he, he, he looked, Hulk looked at AJ in similar to the way that I did. And I, I touched on this a couple of weeks ago, I think. You know, AJ, AJ saw his character through the eye of a needle. He had a very narrow uh, vision for his own character. He saw, you know, he was athletic, obviously. Um, He was highly skilled, high flying, could do things not a lot of other people could do. You know, he was, he was, he was a great technician in the ring, Um, but he lacked character and he lacked range and he lacked depth in his character. And I think what Hulk recognized, and I didn't disagree with, by the way, um, what Hulk recognized is here's this guy with all of this talent but no character and, and being, you know, the number one guy in a homegrown territory is not necessarily a character. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, you could get 250 people in a soundstage go, yeah, that's cool. But that's not a character. That's not a character that evolves. That's not a, 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 a character that people can follow and, and, and watch as he or she grows and evolves into something else. That's just a flat blanket statement. Yep, I'm a homegrown guy, and you know I'm the best there is, and I'm phenomenal. Eh. And I think what Hulk saw is obviously the success of Ric Flair. Ric Flair is one of the greatest technicians, you know, in the last 30 years. Most people would agree with that, particularly in the peak of his career. AJ had this similar potential in in mm-hmm. Hulk's mind, so why not? Kind of take advantage of the fact that Flair's here, and 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 AJ could get that rub to help elevate him beyond the homegrown flatline audience that TNA had at the time, and try to round out his AJ's character a little bit and add some depth to it uh, to grow it. the 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 rationale behind that was not wrong. There may have been a better way to do that, arguably. But the thought behind it was probably right on the money at the time. Look at him now. He's as far from being that short-haired, you know, baby, white meat, baby face, pure as the driven snow, homegrown of talent that he was in TNA as you could possibly get. But you you've got to grow to get there. You you it doesn't happen automatically. If it did, WWE'd have three stars as powerful as John Cena and Steve Austin and Rock were. It's not easy to do. You can't flip a fucking switch. There's no you you can't go to Google and download you know an ebook that'll tell you step by step how to create a really really powerful character. It's it's. <laughs> it's a process and it's an evolution and it's trial and error and it's success and failure. Uh Steve Austin aka the Ringmaster, you know, you you it takes a while to find that magic moment where which becomes a catalyst for a character that resonates and it happens very rarely. Again, I'll repeat myself. If it was easy, you wouldn't be looking at WWE without anybody at the top of the heap driving that company. You got four or five people that are the top stars that are all interchangeable because WWE is the star in my opinion. And then below that, you've got a second tier talent that is striving to become one of those four or five, maybe six people that are interchangeably, you know, qualified to be in the next pay-per-view main event. But there's no real, there's no John Cena. There's no Steve Austin. There's no rock. There's no Ric Flair. There's no Hulk Hogan. You know, WWE hasn't, in my opinion, created a Cena level star since 2002 when they introduced him or whatever year it was. Because it's not easy. Right. It's freaking hard.
0: One last question, then we'll wrap things up here. The man of the 90s wants to know what is Eric's opinion on SoCal Val? She seemed to be there for a lot of TNA's run uh, and had potential to do something, but never really got to do much. I think most fans remember her as like a ring announcer. What did you think of working with SoCal Val? She's the coolest chick. I mean, you've heard me say, I'm
1: attracted to people who, when either they walk into a room or I walk into a room that they're in, I'm instantly in a better mood. I'm either smiling, laughing, or engaged in a conversation that is fun. And and creative and productive and um and positive. And that's SoCal Val. Again, I could I could have you know flown from wherever uh, Cody, Wyoming, I was living in Cody while I was at TNA. I could have flown in a six-hour flight, gotten into Orlando, had to rush in a cab to get to the TV studio, tired, pissed off, angry, head cold, and an ingrown toenail that was killing me walk into the soundstage, pissed off, crouchy, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, all of the above, walk into the room and SoCal Val would say, hey, Eric, how are you today? And within about a minute and a half, I'd forget all that shit. And I'd have a completely different outlook. That was SoCal Val. And she's talented. She's very, very talented. Why she didn't, you know, she wasn't a wrestler. I don't think maybe she was before I got there or not, but she was typically a, a uh, did interviews and hosted and kind of glued things together um, as, as a uh, on-camera talent, um, and she was very talented at that. And I think the reason she was around for so long is because I can't think of one person that didn't feel the same way about her that I did. If there were, I never heard about them. She's just a really cool chick. I run into her. She, I think she lives in the UK now That's Her right. and her husband. That's right. I run into her once or twice a year and she's just, she's the best.
0: Well, we've had fun covering TNA today. We're going to keep it going. We're going to talk about sacrifice from 2010. It went down on May 16th, 2010. That's what we'll be doing next week here on the show. Let me run down what's happening on that show on top. It's Rob Van Dam and uh, AJ styles for the TNA world heavyweight championship. We've got sting working with Jeff Jarrett and Jeff Hardy, working with Mr. Anderson, abyss working with Desmond Wolf, the band, AKA Kevin Nash and Scott hall, taking on Jesse Neal and Shannon Moore for the tag titles. Madison rain is uh, wrestling Tara. And this is title versus career for the TNA women's belt. We've got Doug Williams and Kazarian for the X division title, Rob Terry and Orlando Jordan for the TNA global championship. In a three-way dance with Beer Money, Team 3D, and the Motor City Machine Guns. I got to tell you, that opening match seems like a hell of a match, that three-way dance with those tag teams. This one went down in Orlando at the Impact Zone. Uh, I'm looking forward to covering this one. And uh, I hope everybody listening has checked out the Impact Plus app. It's going to be something that you're going to find coming in handy as we continue to cover some of these TNA episodes. Coming up on the 18th, we'll do a hashtag AskEricAnything. And then we'll close out May on the 25th doing something we've never done before. We'll talk about AEW's Double or Nothing from last year, 2019, the inaugural AEW show. It was a sold-out capacity crowd in Las Vegas. And an event it was, uh, most people were talking about Cody and Dustin when it was all over as perhaps a match of the year candidate. Uh, this is going to be a fun month here on the show, is it not? It is indeed. I'm looking forward to that one in particular. Really am. And, uh, I know there's something you're not looking forward to what we're going to be doing on ad-free shows later this month. We're going to talk about the time you teamed with Matt Hardy to wrestle the young bucks that actually happened in may of 2011. I got to tell you, I wasn't watching TNA in 2011. So that just slipped through the cracks on me. But in hindsight, it's pretty ridiculous. Is it not?
1: It depends on the story leading up to it. I don't remember it to be honest with you, is so I'm going to have to go back and do some digging and do a little research, and I'm not sure what led up to that match, but if if the answer was not much, then, yeah, it's pretty fucking ridiculous. But if there was a little bit of a story to it, and it kind of sort of made sense, um, I don't know. I'll have, to, I'll have to do my research, and then we can talk about it.
0: I can't wait to watch it and poke fine and shit on you, and it's gonna be great. What the fuck?
1: We're, every time I think, God, you know, we become friends, and he's not—he's not, he's not gonna—he's not gonna stick me with a hot fucking poker just for the fun of it, just to watch me growl and get pissed off and throw shit. Nope. And 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 every once in a while, I, I finally let my guard down. I think, okay, we're over all that. Bam! Side of the ribs, hot poker. Here you go. Dave Meltzer said,
0: yeah, here we go. All right. I'm
1: looking forward to it. We'll get through it.
0: It's going to be fun. Tune in next week. TNA sacrifice 2010. Check it out on the impact plus app. I know Eric and I will be, uh, and don't forget to throw us a follow at 83 weeks. He is at E Bischoff. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. We'll see you next week, right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together